Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Hey, everybody. Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Welcome back to It Could Happen Here, the podcast about things happening that are bad and occasionally good, but all have to do with the fact that we're living in a society whose norms are crumbling as the environment uh, also crumbles and political violence and a bunch of other horrible things become more normalized, trying to figure out how to not die, ideally, um, and occasionally how to thrive. And to that end, uh, I have a guest today who has been kind of working with the, working lately on the how not to die in the face of uh, things getting increasingly violent and aggressive out there. I want to welcome Jessica Keckler to the program. Jessica, how are you doing today? Doing great. So, Jessica, um, you know, we are, as listeners to the show and observers of just basic reality in the outside, uh, are aware we're kind of going under a or living through a 
period of like panic and concerted aggressive attack on the rights and ability to exist of transgender people. That's um, yeah. hasn't like has never not been a problem as long as there's been, you know, a, a right. Western civilization, but has increasingly <laughs> been a problem the last year or so. Yeah, it's it's really um, it's really wild because um, when you take estrogen, you're um, when I started taking estrogen, uh, it took like 10 years off of my face as far as age goes. But then in this past year, I think it put back my life back <laughs> on it, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Like it's 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 stressful as hell out there. Um, there has been a surge in violence, um, not just against trans people. Obviously, we've talked about in other episodes um, there's been a surge in violence against Asian Americans, um, against LGBT Americans, but transgender people are much more likely than almost any other group in the United States to be attacked, uh, and that has been increasing reality for a lot of people. And you are one of a number of folks in that position who have been increasingly talking or who have found yourselves thinking about the necessity uh, and value of being armed in order to defend yourself from that. And I want to talk a little bit about your background there and kind of what, um, how, how you kind of came to uh, deciding that that was something that you wanted to not just do personally, but advocate for other people to do. Yeah, um, I went through, well, calling it libertarian spaces, it, it, was, it was many years, but, um, yeah. you know, and I collected a bunch of guns and, you know, I was like, oh, you know, cool. But then um, after I sort of worked through my childhood trauma and stuff, I, you know, started to feel a lot less threatened about, about things. And I just sort of, you know, I just sort of lost interest in them for a while. But then um, a friend of mine, Kendall Stevens, was telling me about um, a time when she was attacked in her home by a group of transphobes and just beaten almost to death. And that next morning, I, um, I, I, I reapplied for my uh, carry permit. Yeah, and this is, I mean, this is a story I was not aware of. I was aware, broadly speaking, there have been a number of attacks, uh, including a number of fatal attacks in the last couple of years on uh, particularly trans women. There was um, uh, the murder of West Philadelphia woman Alicia Simmons um, right. in November of 2021, um, Shante Tucker in Hunting Park in the fall of 2018. Uh, in May of 2019, Michelle Tamika Washington was shot to death in North Philly. And this is all like local to you. Um, right. Oh, and also uh, Dominique uh, Ramey Fells was was uh, mm, murdered yeah. in June of, I think, 2021. Right. Um, and yeah, if people want to look this up, there's a couple of different articles. I, I'm looking at one on Billy Penn with the title, After Surviving a Brutal Attack, Kendall Stevens Wants to Help Trans People Citywide. And yeah, it's a it's a fucking harrowing story, you know, after surviving a number of different attacks from from like people just kind of targeting her because she's trans. She was attacked in her home by six of her neighbors uh, while her goddaughter, who was 12 years old, watched. It's a fucking horrifying story. So you like is did you find out about what had happened like directly from her? Like, how does this kind of information yeah, um, hit you? I was um, I was at a. Um... We, there's a local trans group where we just, you know, get on Zoom and talk. And yeah. um, it was one of my first meetings. And actually, I think it was the very first. And she just told this whole story. And I was just, you know, it's like I always had this feeling of safety. But then it's just I realized, like, oh, that's, you know, like being white, I'm a little safer. But it's just like it's we're all, you know, it's really, I just realized, <laughs> yes. like, we're all in danger. You know? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a matter of like a small number of degrees. It's not. um yeah. So you're 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 trying to deal with this and you're you're communicating. You've got this group 
where you're all sort of like chatting about, I'm guessing just kind of like safety stuff, like, hey, here, you know, we, sh- we should all be kind of keeping each other informed and trying to talk about what's going on. Yeah. Because this mean, is a mostly, thing for Philly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, we mostly just shoot the shit and just, you know, talk things over and stuff like that. But uh, she was, um, yeah, something had come up and she recounted this whole story and it was just, it just really made me go like, oh my God, you know? Yeah. So you kind of are in this position where you own firearms, you're you're comfortable with them, you've been using them for a while, and number one, you get your permit, right? Like, that's kind of the first thing you do, and then I'm yeah. guessing you start to think, like, well, there's not a lot of other people that are in this kind of group I'm in that have this experience, is that kind of like where right. the, yeah. Right, because, um, you know, because uh, when I would talk to people before that, they would just sort of say, like, yeah, I can see where you're coming with that. And but uh, once the attack started, I'm I heard a lot. I've heard of a lot more people going like, "Yes, I need to do that too." You know. Yeah. So I, I kind of want to know because I mean, what we're kind of building to is you've been you've been putting together a class for trans folks in Philly to go to to learn about how firearms function, the legality and legal concerns about being armed, and like the steps they might need to go to if they decide to do that themselves. Um, how does that idea kind of come together for you to actually like put this this class together? Okay, well, um, I'm a member of the uh, the SRA, the Socialist Rifle Association, and they have uh, classes they call Gundamentals, and mm-hmm. it's just sort of an, a broad overview. Um, just sort sort of every if you've never picked up a gun before, it's a, it it will tell you, um, you know, it'll give you just information on you know everything you need to, to before you use it. And mm-hmm. um, I thought it'd be a good idea to just have a trans, just a, a class with just my trans friends. And um, they, they were of course open to it and it went really well. And I plan to do more in the future. Yeah. Um, so you kind of, you're going through both sort of the basics of here's, and this is kind of a thing I think about a lot. I recently carried out a class for, uh, I don't want to be too specific, but at-risk individuals in my local area, that was a mix of, and, and I was not the one doing the stop the bleed portion primarily. We have people who are medical professionals, but it was a mix of a stop the bleed class and like a firearms familiarization class. And it was not from the perspective of like, hey, people need to be strapping up, so here's how to get a gun. But it was from the perspective of, hey, there's 400 million firearms in the United States. Whether, regardless of what you think about the legality, you should have a basic understanding of how they function and how to, since you're all adults, render a weapon safe, right? So we did yeah. we these fake bullet snap caps, so I would explain how mm-hmm. an AR and a handgun works, and then we would have everyone take turns, kind of like we had with the stop the bleed portion, you know, where you teach people how to use a tourniquet. We would have everyone take turns arriving to the weapon putting the weapon in their hands without like flagging everybody or putting their finger on the trigger and then dropping the magazine and clearing it. And a, a lot of folks, the thing they expressed was like, as people who didn't necessarily want to be armed themselves felt like I would, I had never got, I never knew how to like ask to have this experience because normally when you're in the room with a firearm, it's because like maybe you're going to go shooting with somebody or something. So if you're not seeking out that experience to actually go to a range, it's kind of hard to sit with a gun and just understand the basics of how this thing functions and how to render it safe. And so there were a lot of folks who who particularly were like, seemed to be grateful for just that experience to kind of like reduce the mystery around it and gain kind of a functional understanding of just the mechanics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was... Um... Yeah, the class was really good. Uh, I hadn't taken it before, but it's, um, you know, it shows like 
they went through like the, the anatomy of a bullet, the anatomy of a gun, how it works, how to how to do it safely, how to you know like the four rules of uh, gun safety, um, legal things, and it was just it was really good course. Now, so you take this course, you know, you're you're in communication with these friends, you're dealing with like this constant drumbeat of attacks. Um, yeah. You decide it's time to put together a course for people. How do you kind of work out what the syllabus is going to be for this? Um, well, it's their whole, they have the whole class set up already. I just sort of, yeah. Um, had just had a version just for my, my trans friends. Yeah. So what did, what, in ter- like, what did you kind of add to that or alter to that in order to like prepare it for this? Oh, um, not much. I just, it was just, I just thought they would be more comfortable in a class with just us. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. And it, it also, do you think it helped that like, this isn't because you know the Socialist Rifle Association. You're attending that class. You're kind of like attending a class put on by an organization that has being both armed and political kind of in its name, mm-hmm. which it maybe infers a little bit more commitment to something than uh, the class kind of you put together on like a political level. Yeah, it's it's not as hardcore as, as you might think from the name. It's just it's mostly um, sure, have, sure, sure. They have the fundamentals class. They have the stop the bleed courses, kind of you know those kind of things. And I think they there's theory discussions too. I haven't gone to any of them. Yeah, and and so you've you put this thing together, and the thing that you mentioned earlier when we were talking about this is kind of a discussion on like um like the legat the 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 particular legal concerns that trans people seeking to arm themselves might have in your area. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that mm-hmm. because obviously when we talk about gun legalities, it varies wildly from state oh, to state. Yeah, very much. Um, so nothing that either of us say in this should be construed as legal advice for what you should do in your own area. You're going to have to check that out yourself. Absolutely but not. yeah, I'm, I'm interested in what you saw as kind of worth putting in that, that section. Um, well, the, I mean, the, the big addition to bring up is that if you're not, um, if, you're, if you don't present as your assigned gender at birth, uh, they could, the, per, the person who's running the check could say, that, hey, this person is coming to me in a disguise, you know, um, mm-hmm. and you could um, in future if you try to get a gun in the future, that could be on your record and people could use that to deny you. And Really? Mm-hmm. I, now I had never heard about that. So that's like an actual, I mean, obviously like when you file the form four, four, seven, three, and one of the problems I, I know from just talking to friends that you encounter is that like, if your if your your gender does not match like what's on your legal documents and stuff, right. you have to write what's on your legal documents on the form. Cause it's a government form. Um, although the 4473, which is the background check form does now allow you to put in non-binary if that is like, but you still have to have it on your legal documents. Right. Um, and we're, we're mostly used to that for everything else, but it's just the yeah. fact that they could specifically target you. Yeah. I was actually unaware of that as a specific problem, like that you could be accused of like showing up in disguise to do what's called a straw purchase, you know, which is when you illegally buy a gun for somebody else. I didn't realize that was a, Yeah. yeah. So are, were there kind of other things uh, to like keep in mind there? Like, cause I am particularly, I'm sure we have a lot of folks listening who are in this same headspace right now. Um, because again, things aren't getting a lot less scary out there. Um, I mean, I can say just within the last couple of years, probably around half of the people that I shoot with on a regular basis are trans just because like right. it's the the you're you're the folks who are being kind of most directly targeted and have the least institutional support obviously yeah and we um, have like people in congress openly calling for our executions and it's just yes that's a feeling <laughs> you know it's like yeah that's not something i've ever experienced before but it's like yeah you have like nationally famous 
the politicians just saying like, yes, we need to kill every one of them. And it's like, good Lord. <laughs> yeah. I and mean, that's the thing, like, you know, I think I, we talk a lot on the show when we do talk about being armed. And I, I just talk a lot in my personal life about like, sort of where, what the left should be doing in terms of like a gun culture and like the kind of pitfalls that need to be avoided. Because obviously the the solution to like the discrepancy of arms in the left and the right in this country is not to recreate what the right wing has because right. what the right wing has is like vicious and insane oh it's garbage, um, it's <laughs> yeah, garbage. yeah it's it's bad <laughs> we don't we you don't want that no. um but uh and, and and so obviously like one of the things that i tend to think of as as silly is like the the folks who are, and I don't think this is a particularly large chunk, but you do get people who are kind of look at being armed from like, a, and then we're, you know, um, this is so that we can, you know, be the new Red Army insurgent type thing, which I think right. is a less realistic use case of firearms on the left than the police are not going to protect our community. Yeah. Um, there are a shitload of people with guns who hate us. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, like one of the, when I think about like, what are the threats that are realistic and what are the threats when we talk well, obviously to I mean, show that we're on yeah the way they're the way they're doing the um you know you have mm -hmm. um like tucker carlson saying like oh another week in weimar and you know making all these things mm -hmm. and they, they they're sort of like all these trans people it's like someone should do something wink wink you yeah well, exactly and that's the when, when we're on a show right now that started out as me talking about hey i think people who are, I think the threat of a massive civil conflict in the United States is higher than people guess. And that broadly speaking is mainstream. Now there is a strong mainstream understanding that some sort of civil conflict is possible. It's still when people talk about it primarily in the terms of like this big civil war type thing, which I think is broadly speaking, probably pretty silly. Yeah. What's not silly is the breakdown of expectations of social mores and things like you can't show up in a big armed group and start killing people that you have on a list who are are folks that you have decided because they're trans because whatever are are your enemy mm -hmm. and like one of the things that i'm kind of concerned we're going to see at some point in the future is a fucking mob get spun up and go and take out some people on their list and i'm not sure what that list is going to be but you know, there's a couple of people who pay attention. There's a couple of, of broad possibilities as to who would be targeted. And then local law enforcement say, we're not going to choose to do anything about this. Yeah. We're not going to invest. And again, this ha I'm not coming up with this because this is like a bleak. I know you are well aware of this, but like we had an abortion clinic burnt down earlier this mm -hmm. year, and I think it was Kentucky, uh, and the police refused to investigate it, right? Like this kind of shit already yeah. happens, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was... Um for, and for a while, I was like, okay, well, they're not really going to do anything. And then it's like, then they started coming after our kids. And just like, I almost didn't survive my adolescence. So I know just how much pain those kids are in. And um, yeah. And then it's like, okay, then they got rid of Rovers of Wade. And it's like, okay, they're not, they're not just posturing anymore. I mean, the no, they're, sarcastic violence yeah. is like, you know, hey, someone should do something was bad enough. But then it's like, okay, they're really, they're on a tear here. So you're you're put together this class for folks who I'm going to guess most of them had not number one didn't have much experience with weapons prior, firearms prior to this and probably also had not prior to you know the last year or two thought that they would ever be someone considering purchasing not, armaments. Yeah. 
I mean, some of them said that, you know, they grew up, you know, in rural places and grew up with guns and stuff, but haven't yeah. touched them since they were kids. So, right. You, were there any kind of like specific questions that you got that you, you found were interesting or kind of like uh, surprising? Like I'm kind of interested in sort of what sort of things people had to ask. Um, not in particular. I think everyone was just sort of just trying to learn everything and just all like that. Yeah. Were there, is there kind of a, uh, has there been sort of like um, any further discussions about like, well, what comes next, right? Like after the sort of basic class of people decide to start purchasing like firearms, step two is like train in order to use them res- like yeah, functionally, I'm, right? Like it's not a, a kind of thing you can just have. Yeah. The next step, the next step for my, uh, the group of friends that I have, um, I'm planning to, you know, go to a range with them. And um, I mean, we have to sort of find what ranges are most friendly, but um, yeah. So we're probably going to do that and um, just see how it, with everyone i mean i i know that where i am one thing that people will do is you know you'll you'll have folks who will kind of go out and be uh kind of a little guinea pigs for like is this gun store a friendly place right. like right like is this a place we can go and buy weapons and not and and have people like respond well is this range a friendly place and then kind of we'll spread that to the rest of the community that like hey this is a safe place to shoot mm-hmm. or this is a safe place to buy do you have you guys been kind of like setting stuff up like that or, or what? Uh, no, not yet, but that's, that is the next step. So yeah. Trying to figure it out. Yeah. And when it, when it comes to like just organizing for the increasing hostility that, that people are facing, um, has it, like, has it kind of pushed you to do anything more formal with like the communications groups you have in terms of like, you know, I need, I might need, uh, I'm going on a walk at night. I need somebody to be able to like call or something like that. I'm worried I'm being followed. Like, is there, has, has this been the kind of thing that you've been like setting up more in the way of, uh, not, precautions around? Not so much. Cause, uh, most of us just live in the city and we're, we're usually pretty okay with that. Um, or yeah. we'll just have, you know, friends nearby, you know, nothing so, um, formal. Yeah. Um, I mean, which is, yeah. I think how most people mm. kind of do it. Um, what do you sort of like watching out right now? Um, what is kind of, I don't know the, the thing you're, you like, like, do you have anything sort of on the horizon that you're sort of looking at as, you know, if this happens, then I'm going to expect this to happen. And like, you know, maybe we need to do this will be time for some kind of more formal plans. It's hard to say. I'm. I've just been sort of just watching all of this hor- horrible stuff unfold. Everything um, happens so fast. Yeah. I mean, you know, like I said, I didn't think they were going to get rid of Bro. So it was just. I, I just. I don't know what's coming next. Um. I'm just realizing it's yeah. like it's so serious. It's actually getting to the point where I'm just sort of seeing myself just trying to make amends with people in my past, and it's like you just look. You just take a step back and look at yourself. Like, oh wow, it really is getting bad. That I just subconsciously, I'm just thinking I should make peace with some of these people. That's pretty bleak. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm struggling for like something more positive to say, um, which I'm not sure is the is the kind of the right impulse. But it is sort of like we're all kind of like grappling for. Cause one of the problems is that the scale of the threat 
I think is, or the reality of the threat is very clear to people, right? Whether you're kind of a centrist dim and you just see like, oh shit, there's actually like a lot of like militia type folks with guns talking about a civil war and they almost took over Congress. Mm -hmm. This is a real threat. Or whether you're, you know, uh, uh, a trans person or, um, you know, an indigenous person or uh, a migrant or something, somebody who's, you know, here in the country in a, a less than legal fashion and you're seeing like, oh, there's specific threats against groups, people like me, and they're being more organized and more attacks are being carried out. Um, the the reality of the threat is, I think, clear in differing degrees to everybody. What's not clear is the the scope and the shape of it, yeah. right? So we know there's a lot of like armed right wing assholes talking about violent shit. We don't know is are they ever going to get their shit together, right? Like enough yeah. to do so, like well, my, and to what extent and in what areas, my right? My take on like, that is, I think that you know, it's like the enemy is strong and weak at the same time, of course. But um, I think with us, yeah. they're really, they really don't expect any resistance. And I think that if, yeah. you know, if they start meeting resistance or seeing us with that, like, hey, we have the same rifles you do, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, th well, and I, I think that might, you know, hold them off a little bit, at least. I, I think that's generally like a, if you're kind of like, I don't know, uh, uh, thinking about it from that, from the perspective of like, and kind of a, a soulless, like, uh, top-down view of this is just a strategic thing. Like, what are the what are the best ways to oppose this kind of like right-wing insurgent force? Well, like, obviously, one of them is is not to like hand them ground, right? right? Like, don't 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 do the thing that you see a lot of people on the left doing, which is oh, they're coming for you know trans people. Well, that's not. You know, you, 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 there's been a lot of like very ugly talk on certain chunks of liberals and left of like, well, you know, if we defend these people, yeah. that's going to be bad for us in an electoral sense, you know, and like well, you know, this isn't Clinton. something that gets you votes in small. Um, exa exactly. Hillary Clinton mm -hmm. just fucking came out and said this, right? Yeah, just throw and like, throw us under the bus. It's um. <laughs> I, I think like I think historically is a bad strategy. You know, if you're just looking at what happened in history, obviously mm -hmm. I think it's immoral. Um, and I also, yeah, I, I think that you are right in that the only reason that they're this scary right now is because for the better part of 20 years, a little less than that, but this really started to accelerate after Obama got elected. Oh, yeah. Every time the far right has like pushed for something and like made a stink or started making threats, people have backed off, right? And even outside of, you know, threats to specific communities, there was shit like the MIAC report, which is in like, the the mid of Obama's term, the Homeland Security put out a report warning about the growth of the domestic militia movement. Mm -hmm. And they like made a big, they flipped out about it and were like, look, they're saying that if you have a Gadsden flag, you're a domestic terrorist right. and all this stuff. Right. And the Obama backed off and fired all of the people in, in the federal government who were like watching this shit, right. um, which we can talk about the degree to which it's ever reasonable to hope that the feds are going to do anything about this. Right. But it, it it's it's an example of this you get scared that opposing these people is going to be bad for you politically. And so you make a craven political decision to cede ground to them and then they get more dangerous. Well, right. It seems like that's like, what the Democrats have just been doing lately. I mean, just yeah. last several decades, really. It's such like a, a, a minefield to talk about being armed and being armed responsibly in the context of, of the 21st century United States, because there's so much to juggle, including the fact that we have basically nearly weekly uh, massacres and stuff being committed by people who 
go and pick up a gun from you know a sporting goods store or whatever. Um, but and almost all fascists. Yeah, and they're almost all fascists with the history of violence towards women. Um, but it 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 is like I think when we are talking about what it is the actual importance on both an, an individual level of being the importance on an individual level of of people who are in threatened communities being armed is that they cannot trust the police or the state to take any actions to protect them. And we see that because they get thrown under the fucking bus yeah, every my, time my friend, somebody comes for My friend Kendall said um, after her attack that the police just sort of dismissed her. They just sort of like, oh, you know, it was just mm-hmm. sort of dead. You know, they uh, like misgendered her, just like just complete, you know, disinterest. And I, yeah, and obviously, like this is this is a thing you don't have to. There's a bunch, numerous other stories of of that. Um, and then on the other end of things, you have like most of these people. One of the things we have in our corner, as like scary as the the insurgent right is, is most of them are fucking cowards. And Very when much. they get opposed, when somebody shows up and throws down. Mm-hmm. Usually they fucking, it's one thing if it's like a street fight, right? Because people don't tend to get killed in street right. fights and you can make a lot of money filming videos of it. <laughs> when fucking, when, when people start pulling straps, yeah. you know, like it gets really different really fucking quickly. Right. Um, and it, in general, we've seen in Portland, there have been a couple of these folks shot in uh, defensive shootings. Yeah. And it's part of why. That kind of stuff doesn't happen as much as it was in 2018. Um, you saw that shit happen in Denver, and it had an effect on the uh, the intensity of, of rallies there. When these people are, it would be irresponsible to say that it's like good when this happens, but when they suffer consequences for trying to hurt people, it it scares some of them it's away. It's a classic bully thing, really. You know, it's just yeah. if you stand up to them, they'll realize. You know, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 this is just kind of turned into us sort of talking about the ethics of, <laughs> of community self-defense. But I think it's something, I think it's important to talk about. And I think it's also important to kind of reclaim from this kind of masturbatory fantasy yeah. of uh, becoming a Minuteman or whatever. And also this masturbatory fantasy of like, this is something, this is a, 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 a thing I do as like part of my identity um as opposed to like this is a thing that i do in order to defend my ability to continue to be who i am right i'm not right? i'm not a radical i just want to be alive you know and yeah. if i'm not if i have to detransition i will not want to be alive and that's that yeah yeah and yeah uh well did you have anything else you wanted to get into uh while we're talking today jessica uh no i think that's it all right. Well, uh, do you have anything you wanted to plug? Any place you wanted to kind yes. of direct people? Um, uh, well, there's the, the SRA um, because that's uh, if someone wanted to at home wanted to uh, to do their own thing, the SRA would probably be uh, very receptive. Um, I'm sure there's other organizations. Um, yeah, there's John Brown Gun Clubs and stuff, and other organizations that don't have names. And on a personal level, yeah. I uh, well, I, I, I make bondage collars and paddles. Uh, it's called Bondage Robot. It's an Etsy store. It's uh, bondage-robot.com. Excellent. That's right. Do, 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 yeah. Um, so bondagerobot.com. Um, check that out. Um, you're also on Twitter. Do you want to direct yeah, people? Um, I mean, it's, that's it's where I found Jessica, it. Yeah, yeah, Jessica Lashnikoff. Just figure it out. You'll see it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, that is going to be our episode for the day. Everybody, uh, stay safe and... Um, you know, 
think about the ethics of community self-defense. It's important. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. Just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Oh boy, it could happen here, and it seems to be happening more after the last couple of days. Uh, this is a podcast about how everything's looking pretty bad these days, um, and in particular, right now, we're, we're here. We've got the whole team, not the whole team, we've got 70% of the team 
here to do a roundtable discussion about the thing, you know, the thing, the thing that happened this last week that is still the main thing happening, which is the FBI raided former President Trump's house. Um, and now all of his fans are declaring war on the FBI, which has so far been, let's all be honest here, pretty funny. Um, but everybody's also a lot. There's a lot of worry going on. There's a lot. The uh, some folks have documented, I'm sure we'll talk about this, that like discussion online of civil war and civil conflict has like exploded to new heights over the last like four days or so. Um, so yeah, we're going to talk about all of that, but, but here's, here's, here's the team. We've got Garrison Davis, James Stout, and we've got Christopher Wong. And of course me, Sophie, how's everybody doing today? I'm doing great. Yeah. Magnificently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, where's, where's, where's everybody's new civil war counters at who, who here feels like we're, we're closer (laughs) and who here feels like we've gotten further away. (laughs) Well, it's definitely gone up. It's definitely gone up a little bit. Um, yeah, temperatures a little higher for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're st- we're still not really around the averages around J six. No, but it's it is it's 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 the highest it's been around like the Biden administration. Um, yeah, I just made some uh, ceramic armor purchases. Is where my uh, where where my current Civil War counter is at. <laughs> yes, I did just get another set of rifle plates. <laughs> Got some side um, plates. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you know, who had body armor is the guy who single handedly attacked that FBI field office in Ohio with a nail gun and then died in a field. (laughs) Okay, before before we get into that, Ricky, can we can we talk about what what the fuck is going on with that guy who like lit himself on fire in his car and ran into the Capitol barrier and like, oh, I forgot about that. What on earth? Yeah. like, that might have just been a suicide because I, yeah, I haven't maybe. heard any. We don't seem to have any clear evidence that it was political. Yeah, like, it's just yeah. it's just like a really weird like I don't know that that that's that's a kind of thing that feels like if it was happening five years ago would have been like a major news story. And when I was yeah. trying to find news stories about it, so I, the first thing I did was okay, I, I googled a DC car attack and I found a different DC car attack, yep. and then I googled yeah. DC shooting and I found a different DC shooting. And like even combining the two, it's just like, oh, this is yeah. We're we're living in a great time. This, is, this isn't this even is the first, fun. not even the first person to drive their car into a Capitol Police barrier and yeah. then get out no. and start shooting. Right? <laughs> like, like this is uh, this is the United States. Yeah. It's just something we do here. Is, yeah, uh, it's really it's, incredible. It's an approved martyrdom method. I mean, it just it does kind of seem like it was just a suicide. Like that one was just a an that's apolitical the, suicide. That's what the Capitol Police are saying. He was 29 yeah. years old, didn't appear to be targeting any members of Congress, fired shots into the air before taking his own life. Mm-hmm. Um, no officers shot their weapons. It was very it was very quick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It is interesting. But, There's a chunk in this because one. he is he is no Ricky Schiffer. <laughs> yeah, that that, that the, the DC story uh, seems Ricky. sad. The the Schiffer story is yes, incredible, much super more, funny, much more funny. <laughs> Having yeah. gone through, I mean, so this what is obviously you have Donald Trump get raided by the FBI, and then less than two days later, you have this guy show up outside of an FBI field office, try to force his way through, or try to break through the bulletproof glass with a nail gun, and then winds up in an hours long standoff before being shot to death by the FBI. Which is very funny because he. Th- so I, I guess the thing about this that's unsettling 
um, that that uh, a colleague of ours, Jason Wilson, pointed out on Twitter, and that I think is worth noting, is that while this kind of thing is is extremely American and very common, um, the thing that is uh, kind of unsettling about Schiffer is that he's not he's he's just a he's he's straight up normal MAGA, right? Like he's not from any of the. There's no evidence that he was kind of like dipping into these other subcultures that are more explicitly like terroristic in their nature. Like Law this, enforcement pretty... says that he may have ties to proud boys, but yeah, like, we'll, we'll see. He was at J six, you know, so I'm sure, yes. but it, it, I mean, it's what it is, is a, a guy who is a normal Trump supporter, um, getting it's radicalized. What, what might call yeah. Ultra MAGA in the, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, he was ultra to the extent of what he did a few days ago, um, and he was on that, Truth Social, and like he he was. Uh, yeah, well, but that's like that's that's not that irregular. Like, if you watch the most recent Jordan Klepper video, there's people doing like like regular ass people saying things that are way more absurd than what they were saying two years ago. Yes. Like, the rea- reality has become so detached for yeah. the, a certain sect of, like, Trump lifers, and it's just impossible to pry them away uh, to the point where they uh, ineffectually attack an FBI office with a nail gun uh, yeah, and, and, and die in a shootout hours later. And, and Schiffer, I mean, one of the things that you might compare a little bit to Schiffer is, you know, there have been... Uh, particularly during the Trump years, there were a couple of attacks on ICE facilities um, that were kind of like acts of desperation from people who were politically radicalized by the things happening, um, but also felt mm-hmm. like there was kind of no hope of uh, of taking any sort of useful action other than being an individual going out and attacking ICE. And I, I think this is a lot more similar to that in terms of the headspace of the guy than it's similar to, for example, like the Nazis shooting up like an El Paso fucking Walmart because they want to stop white genocide. Yeah. Like this is this is a guy who was like purely radicalized by mainstream conservative media um, and and the president's social media network. He was directly radicalized by President Trump as opposed to like. <laughs> yeah finding Trump funny and then like winding up in some, some fucked up places online that radicalize him. And that is unsettling, even though it's again, pretty funny what happened to him. Um, I think both of those things can be true. And I think we have to take joy in the the times when individual MAGA dudes use nail guns to try and attack the entire FBI. <laughs> really? He really yeah. thought that, that you could use that, that bulletproof glass can't be broken <laughs> by bullets, but you can yes. use nail guns to I just really truly he's, well he thought brain. that yeah. this gets to what the communities that he was kind of radicalized and he thought that because there's a lot of like normal gun youtube videos where people will like because the thing on like gun youtube is people will take different kinds of firearms or other weapons and different kinds of materials and see how the two interact together right like do what happens when you shoot a bullet at this how hard is it to get through bulletproof glass what are ways and like he certainly figured that out because of because there are some specific videos people pointed out that are likely the ones he watched where like there are ways that you can kind of damage and take the um you you can gradually like make bulletproof glass fail by using a nail gun. There are ways in which you can do that. It just doesn't happen to be a way something you can do while you are standing in front of an FBI field office without getting shot to death by the FBI. <laughs> uh, before before yeah. he before he died, he posted a few messages onto Truth yeah. saying, "Well, I thought I had a way through the yes. <laughs> and I didn't. Also, if you don't hear from me, it's true. I tried attacking the FBI and I'll 
and it'll mean I was either taken off the internet, the FBI got me, or they sent the regular cops. It, to, yeah, to, to be fair to this guy, he, he did successfully manage to shoot a nail gun at the FBI offices. The FBI weren't the ones who killed him. Like, he actually got yeah. away from yeah, that, which is... Highway Patrol, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. He also yeah. called for people to prepare themselves for combat in the days after the FBI search. Yeah. And that we must not tolerate this one. Uh, along other posts around people urging to kill FBI agents on site and be ready to take down other active enemies of the people and those who try to prevent you from doing it. All, all that yeah. kind of rhetoric. Yeah. And there's... I like, I, I, what, sorry. No, I like the on-site thing. Uh, like, we all have this kind of joke about, like, people dressing like feds, right? But uh, it's very funny that he thinks that maybe they're coming out like men in black or something. And that yeah, that's how they'll be yeah he's not going to be looking for, like, f- like feds in Patagonia, which is, w- which is what they actually wear. <laughs> um, he's... he's Yes, yeah. Look for the man. Look, if you, if you see if you see a Patagonia vest, that is either a federal agent or an Amazon executive. And either way, you should be frightened. <laughs> either way, on site. <laughs> yeah, yeah, stand by. Oh no! Um, also, just such a generous interpretation that they'd take him off the internet for the crime of like yeah. trying to shoot up an FBI well, office. They did, James. <laughs> he's, he's not online yeah. anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Although, although, like, kind of bluntly posting about the terroristic attack you carried out on the FBI in in like as you are actively dying. I know. <laughs> as he's doing like, it, you have to say the man had the soul of a poster. He had That's the soul the, of a that is the poster. He had the he soul of a posting. boomer. Well, and, 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 uh, I think it's also like it's interesting, right? Because th- this isn't like because like there's lots of like mass shooters who sort of who kind of have poster brain, right? But like this is like th- this isn't like like he's he's not doing it brain. for the post. Yeah, no, no, yeah. No, no, no. He just has yeah. poster brain. It is like like, like this is yeah. just sort of like it is yeah. it is separate from someone doing. A specific like mimetic attack, like an attack to entice mimetic violence in the future. This was just a. This was just his form of communication as his, in his regular life. Um, yeah, and it, it was, was and it was mm-hmm. the Ohio st- State Troopers that pursued the vehicle. Okay. Yeah, but well, I, there I you think go. that 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 does point to something that's kind of bleak about this, right? Which is like the extent to which, like the the extent to which wi- the, the 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 way this kind of politics functions is by having like you know social media becomes your entire like yes. social sphere to the point where it's like well what are you doing in your last moments as you're like running away from the cops who are about to shoot you it's like well we're going to post yeah get, and, get and, on and I, got to got to send out a truth <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's but, that but it's scene like, from love actually but it's not true anymore right yeah. <laughs> where they're like Talking about what people did in 9-11 when they were stuck in the towers and they like called loved ones and told them they loved them. Not this guy. He no. posted on True Social. Uh, this this guy, this guy didn't have people. Ricky Schiffer, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, so there is one of the things that people have been asking again is in the wake of this massive surge in right-wing people talking about how it's time to have a civil war and one of the things you you did see is like as soon as trump got raided fairly like mainstream maga figures who <laughs> tend to be more careful in terms of their language than like the, the the radicals talking about like it's war you know now we're at war this is a cold civil war and most of them like steven crowder were doing it to sell t-shirts but that that's still that is an escalation in danger, right? Because with yeah. that the yes. rhetoric that becomes common, again, you're going to have more Ricky shippers, and I'm sure that was part of like what was going on in this guy's head. Is 
okay, well, if we are in a cold civil war, then I'm not going to just sit back and let the FBI destroy the only hope for Western civilization. I've got to fight back. Um, yeah. That's 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 what happened. And and if you're if people are asking kind of like what is about to happen, what is coming next? Um, I don't think the thing to worry about is like, you know, two sides taking up arms and suddenly fighting a big civil war. That is that is not, I think, the realistic threat model. But I also disagree with the folks who are like, look, it's just going to it's it's not going to be a problem. You're going to get a couple of like lunatics carry out attacks, but it's all going to be fine. No, w- what is happening is. Um, we are normalizing the language of political violence and normalizing that violence is the only resolution to our political problems. And that has gotten normalized for roughly 30% of the voting population of this country. Um, that's, that's where they are. And that is intensely dangerous. Um, it is not, I don't, I don't think, and I think partly you could, there's, there, it's not entirely bad stuff that's come out as a result of Trump getting raided. Some of it is is positive because we are seeing that a, a significant number of like the media people are um, scared of that to a degree um, and peeling back. You know, there was an interesting thing that happened just today. The article came out that apparently Trump reached out to Merrick Garland and uh, asked him how he could lower the temperature. Um, and it's, it's interesting. It's, it's and Garland unclear. is who for the listeners who doesn't do not keep up with oh, the, the attorney general. Yeah. So the, the, the president of the FBI effectively, um, <laughs> that's not how politics works, but let's just say that and make the people online who pay attention to the way the government works very angry. But so basically what it seems like Trump is doing is saying, Hey, I recognize that like things are bad and scary. And the the political temperature is like at a boiling point. I want to try to use that as leverage to work things out with the DOJ. So you could see this as a couple of things. You could see it one as potentially Trump being just actually concerned about the rhetoric because a shooting war would not be a good thing for him. You could see it as Trump being kind of manipulative and trying to use like, oh, well, this is now the fact that my supporters are scary and carrying out terrorist attacks is a way in which I can utilize leverage and like um, exercise power over the government. And and it's, it's kind of a bargaining chip that I have in my fight with the FBI. Or you could even see it as potentially evidence that he actually is scared of potential prosecution, because maybe this is him kind of that maybe this is a show of desperation. It's really unclear at the moment what it is. I can tell you I've read a couple of right wing. The The New York Times is the one that broke this story and their their reporting on it is pretty straightforward and mostly focuses on the uh, uh, like claims made by Trump's legal team about like, you know, how they attempted to comply with the requests to bring in classified information. But um, the right wing media coverage of this has been really different and has shown it as like. Trump is just sort of desperately, you know, trying to trying to be reasonable. And, you know, the Justice Department um, just isn't willing to talk to him and isn't willing to work with him at all. And that's kind of the way it's being spun right now. There was that uh, pro-Trump protest in D.C., Mm -hmm. which uh, got no one to show up because it was either canceled or a whole bunch of like forums or image boards or for blogs told people not to go because they thought it could be uh, a trap. And I think stuff like that happening in D.C. might still take a long time to recover after J6. But yes. stuff that's happening in other capitals and other places and other uh, now FBI offices is is much more concerning. And it's, I think more localized shows 
of support for President Trump or oh. support for just whatever the current thing is is probably going to it's going to continue going with some image of militancy you know right whether that's people yeah. in ho hawaiian shirts showing up with guns outside the fbi office which you've or, seen in arizona just in the last couple of days yeah yeah like literally yesterday as yeah. we record this um when it comes to actual like so one of the reasons people have been concerned about civil war stuff um is and this is not un unreasonable is the fact that you have had Republican officials, including some state-level elected officials, particularly in Florida, saying some pretty wild shit, um, including like a, a, a state uh, congressional candidate talking about um, we need to basically kick the FBI out of the entire state. Um, Governor DeSantis needs to exercise uh, like the basically saying that DeSantis needs to use Florida state law enforcement to stop the FBI from investigating the former president. And were that to happen, that would be a big deal. That would be um, like that is the kind of thing that could lead to a massive civil conflict. Right. Um, because vaguely speaking, stuff like that is what caused is what started the actual shooting in the last civil war is states saying we are not recognizing the authority of the federal government. We're not doing a thing that the federal government tells us we have to. Um, and this is something like there's a lot of support from MAGA folks for this. Ben Collins, um, who does, I think, for NBC, was posting the other day. Um, a lot of like different Trump Q forum sort of uh, posts where people are saying, hey, Don Jr., um, we know you lurk on the site. You should cross the Rubicon and, you know, somehow get DeSantis to use Florida law enforcement to attack the FBI. And there's some pretty gnarly stuff in those posts. Now, I don't think that that means there's actually I haven't seen evidence that there's much political will for that. And in fact, one of the things people are saying is that it looks like there's a decent chance DeSantis um cooperated and helped the yeah, fbi yeah because desantis and, yeah. wants to be president yeah because yeah, desantis yeah. wants to be president that he's actually like on board with this because he wants to fuck over trump yeah now that I is think... scary and that is i think a more realistic threat model than the idea that um desantis might have the florida state troopers start shooting at as, the fbi as, <laughs> as funny as it may be to watch florida law enforcement shoot at the fbi that would um, be pretty funny garrison i don't <laughs> pretty funny <laughs> i know i know um i don't think desantis will do that because desantis really wants to be president yeah. um which is just another scary possibility and that would honestly be less funny to watch um yeah. it's it's like it's not great overall it's a, it's two great it's two not great sets of choices here yeah and i i think if we're looking at like what the actual kind of mass civil threat uh is as opposed to desantis declaring uh secession or something and the trump states trying to declare their independence i think the actual threat is that this could damage trump enough that he doesn't run and desantis maybe is and, and this is very unclear by the way if you look at the polling it's extremely unclear as to whether or not desantis would do better than trump in a in a national election right now yeah um but some of the polling does suggest that even as unpopular as biden is right now um he still has a sizable lead over trump in any headway because that people fucking hate donald trump right if you are not one of the people who is <laughs> on the verge of attacking an fbi building right now you don't like him even yeah. if Biden has not done anything to help you, at, at least in your mind, um, you know, then then 
And so that that is kind of the bet that DeSantis is making. And I think what scares me most about the rhetoric we're seeing right now, less than the fact, the idea that like Florida is going to declare war on the fucking DC government is the threat that the rhetoric will stay at this heightened level. And you're already seeing the thing that scares me more than talk about like we should secede is talk about like, well, when we're back in power, we're just going to send the FBI after everybody that is right. that we consider an enemy. Let's 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 raid them all, you know? Yeah. And that's the thing that scares me. And that's the thing that I think could actually lead to the highest loss of life. There's there's that part. And then obviously, like in terms of like bringing it back to what we to, to stuff we talk about on the show, a, a DeSantis pre, like presidency would be extremely hostile to queer people, yes. way, way, way more so than Trump. Um, yes. And that would be varying on some very dangerous and very unshaky ground. And, and I think in the short term, too, there's there's another danger there, which is that, like, we see this kind of militancy from the right, like, spreading more and more into just the other campaigns that they're doing. And so, you know, we start getting attacks of gender clinics. We start seeing more attacks on abortion clinics. And I think that's what's possible. And I think also, like, a, a, another thing to be thinking about is looking what ha- at what happened in 2020, where... Specifically around the anti-lockdown stuff, you know, you, you you just we just had a whole bunch of armored people like occupying Capitol buildings, and it worked. It was an inc- it was incredibly effective, right? Like there is like the, the 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 net result of that and the sort of like resulting political campaign from it is that like the entire Democratic Party has decided that it just doesn't like it's not even going to talk about COVID anymore, and like the, the CDC is just like pretending it doesn't exist. Yeah, and so like like that 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 yeah. strategy like that there's strategy. And the thing is again like that stuff was the, the actual policies. Like stuff like I don't know, like stuff like like vaccine mandates for teachers is like a sixty four percent approval rating, right? Like the the actual like everyone doesn't die from COVID policies are popular. It's just that like this sort of you know getting 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 a bunch of guys with guns to go into a Capitol building and then yell about it is a, a, enough of a political threat that, you, that they can they can force the Democrats to back down. And yeah, there's yes. I think there's I think there's a non zero chance they start trying to do this with other things. They start trying to do this with like hey, if you're gonna have gender clinics in your state, we're gonna start occupying capitals again. And and you could see the fact that and, and one of the things that is unclear that makes it hard to tell if so it is unclear as to whether or not the Biden White House knew that this raid was happening, like and and who knew. There are definitely reports that some staffers found out about it on fucking Twitter. I have to you I I, I have to assume that the president was aware of it and like it was probably him that he to some extent pushed for it. Um, I would have trouble believing that he did not because it's the FBI rating a former president, right? The FBI has a lot of power, but I don't think that's a thing that the feds just do because, right? Like I think yeah, they no. have, you, you have to have Garland on your side. And if Garland is, you know, directing this to some extent, then like I'm sure Biden is aware. And that actually and F- might be- huh? And the FBI director that Trump appointed. Yeah, yeah, Chris Ray. <laughs> um, who sucks? They, I mean, obviously they all suck. Everybody involved in this sucks. There was a great post someone made right after the raid that says, look, I want to make it really clear. The FBI cannot do good things, but they can do funny things. And this yeah, is yeah. extremely <laughs> funny. <laughs> and I just like that specifically some of the some of the crimes around keeping classified documents and this p- specific FBI director are both things that either Trump signed into into law yes. yeah. or he appointed himself. <laughs> Yeah, it it is very yeah. funny. I have been talking to people who have had uh, security clearances and understand some of that, and um, like the the shit that they got from his house and those 
11 boxes or whatever is the kind of thing that like does not get fucked with in the way that Trump like fucked with it. Like it's, it's, I mean, the fact that the espionage act is in play is pretty shocking. Um, as is the fact that Rand Paul is now calling for the Espionage Act to be dissolved, which is like, I'm based, not against. Based I'm in, absolutely wow, yeah, incredibly yeah. based, incredible. Rand Paul. Mm-hmm. And it, it, so no, one I mean, of the, it is, yeah, it is really, it is really, it is a thing to watch everyone go like, you know, defund FBI, abolish FBI, just because power gets used against one person one time. Yeah. And you're like, oh, this power yeah. only exists to hurt minorities. Why is it being used to hurt me? Well, or um, the, someone who I who I look up to. There's a discourse on the left right now that is like, should we be working with the right to defund the FBI or whatever? And here's the thing, in my opinion. No, you should not work with the right on any of this stuff because they don't want to get rid of the FBI. They want to take the weaponry and power that the FBI has and they want to like deploy it differently. But they still want that power to exist, right? Yeah. Um, so no, you can't work with them on that. However... If they start actually trying to remove the Espionage Act, then absolutely we should vote to remove the Espionage Act. Oh, yeah, like, that that's, would be, that's, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. Like, just like if they actually vote to reduce funding to federal law enforcement, that's fine. But that doesn't mean like you you act as if they're legitimately fighting against any of this stuff. But um, when it comes to – so I, I think that there's some potential evidence, just the fact that this raid happened – that shows that maybe there are folks in the Biden administration who understand the stakes of the fight and are taking it seriously because this is, I mean, and we'll see how it shakes out. It's all still too early to know if like anything more serious than his house being disrupted is going to happen. But like if they really throw down legally against Trump in this way to try to stop him from being able to hold office again and, and to try to actually punish him for his abuses of power, um, that's potentially a pretty smart move if they have the stones, right? That's a big question is like, are they going to back down because the right starts threatening to shoot things up? So like the scary thing potential here is that the right wing starts howling about how they're going to do a bunch of murders over this. And so the DOJ backs off and the right is like, well, what if we just threaten to commit mass murder anytime something we don't like happens? Maybe that's how we win politics now. The positive with this is that like the way fascists succeed historically is because people who are not fascists are not really willing to fight them. And so the fascists go for it and everybody else backs off because they're scared of having a fight. Right. So if this shows that there's actually some teeth within the democratic party to throw down, that's potentially a sign that like they've started to recognize where the stakes are. Um, That shouldn't be taken as too high of a possibility. I'm looking at a post from David Froome, um, famed (laughs) centrist idiot uh, who's yeah. talking about how he thinks the DeSantis nomination in 2024, quote, represented a much better outcome for the whole country than a Trump return. Maybe you oh don't boy. like his manner or record, but he's a recognizably normal U.S. politician. If oh, no. Go peacefully. If defeated, he'd go peacefully. Like, first off, great. Incredible that that's where we are right now, that you're like, <laughs> Yeah. Well, he's a fine. Yeah. He, he would be a fine candidate for the Republicans to run because he wouldn't try to overthrow the country if he lost. Number one, not certain about that. But number two, um, yikes! Again, if David Froome is saying something, he's wrong, right? That is that is the rule. The rule of David Froome. He's he's yeah. one of those kind of like thinkers in American politics where whatever he's saying is not right. Yeah, I, well, I, and, and like and DeSantis, like right now, is like very openly like 
getting his people in position to take control of the Florida, uh, like to take control of Florida's like election procedures. Like he has his guy, yeah. Saul's attorney general. It's like he's like very openly trying to do a uh, what was the guy's name? Kelp who rigged the election in Georgia a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's like very uh, obviously I, prepping to do that, and it's like I'm I'm uh, sure it'll be fine. He seems like a normal enough guy. Yeah, we'll go peacefully. Mm-hmm. I do want to just read, before we close out, read a few things that how how the FBI and how the DHS have been talking about the threats that they've been seeing. Because yeah. how the kind of institutions of power talk about these same things is worth noting. Um, yes. They, they, they released a memo saying that there are threats, quote, occurring primarily online and across multiple platforms, including social media sites, web forums, video sharing platforms, and image boards. Uh, the FBI and DHS have observed an increase in violent threats posted on social media against federal officials and facilities, including a threat to place a so-called dirty bomb in front of the FBI headquarters and issuing general yeah. calls for civil war and armed rebellion. Um, so yeah, they they said that they're 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 looking at they're looking at uh, threats through like uh, specifically in identifying proposed targets, tactics, and weaponry. Um, and you know it goes it goes on to talk about the uh, targeted for uh, people in like the ju- judicial system, law enforcement, government officials associated with the Palm Beach search, the targeting the federal judge who who approved the search warrant, um, and uh, the FBI has also observed the personal identifying information of possible targets of violence, such as the home addresses and identification of of family members uh, disseminated online as additional targets. So in terms of like what like the attack surface is on these types of, you know, image boards and social media sites, uh, even um, before before Schiffer did his attack, he posted, "When they come for you, kill them. Be an American, not a steer." And I think other kind of things that could be at play and th- things that are worrying me as stuff develops, not because. They're worrying me not because they're convincing. They're worrying me because they don't need to be convincing. Um, yeah. Deceptively edited photos and videos have gone viral across social media over the the, the past week following the search. Um, while guest hosting Tucker Carlson tonight on Fox News, Brian uh, Clemide showed a fake image of the judge who signed off on the, on the, on the search warrant sitting beside... Uh, uh, is it Glissian Maxwell? How, how do you say her name? Gislaine. Gislaine. Gillen. That's how Genuinely, that's how you. No, it, it, it's it's Gillen. Maxwell. So, you know, sh- showing this, you know, quote unquote meme, while not saying it's a meme, just showing the picture on on Friday, a fake video purporting to show another Fox host, Sean Hannity, arguing with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis over the definition of what an FBI raid is. But that discussion never happened. This was spliced together footage from years apart in different interview segments. Um, Hours after the video went viral on Twitter, the platform did place a manipulated media label. Um, And yeah, it's 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 this kind of stuff that is going to be, you know, in terms of like, you know, trying to prospect, trying to like prospect what the next few years could be, depending on who the who the president is what types of like media is going to be popular, how this is going to kind of impact the temperature politically and how people take in information and how people are willing to turn information into action in terms of taking out violence, that how often these little small things are happening is, 
it's it's this it could be the start of a of a thing that becomes a much bigger problem very soon. Yeah. Um yeah. I think maybe like in terms of the temperature rising, we should discuss mm-hmm. just really briefly these other sort of um more or less baseless or sort of wildly off base conspiracies around uh law enforcement that we've seen on the right like in the last few weeks. Um do we do we want to talk about those? Or do we want to talk about those separately? I'm not sure what you're referring to. Uh, so there's uh, there's a couple of things that have happened that have sent like the, the the right pretty sort of crazy in the last few weeks. One is the uh, in the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, there's there's this part where they say they're going to hire eighty seven thousand new IRS agents, right? Yes, uh, yes. A large mm. part of that is replacing the massive amount of IRS people who are about to retire. Um, and the the rest of it is getting them back up to sort of where they were a few years ago. It's not like they're like going to actually hire pre-pandemic levels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are like seventy thousand. I think half of them are supposed to retire in the next five years. They want to hire eighty-seven thousand over the next ten years. So so that'll get them up by twenty thirty-two to to where they were in twenty nineteen or whatever. Yeah. Um. So it's not what it's portrayed as, but that combined, I think, with um. The ATF visiting a guy's house, which I know Garrison and I saw memes about in, mm-hmm. in this crazy little conservative newspaper that we uh, that we came across when we were reporting on a story, um, and the ATF reclassifying some uh, thing as uh, things that are called AR pistols, which we probably don't need to explain, other than yeah. saying that they're a workaround for federal firearms law. Is that fair? Yeah, there's a bunch of different there's a bunch of kinds of guns that you're not supposed to be allowed to have without a special tax stamp, which is like a whole additional legal process in order to basically make sure that poor people can't own certain types of of specific firearms. And there's yeah. workarounds where things function the same way as those guns that are normally illegal, but they aren't technically that and the FBI or not FBI and the ATF is about to crack down on some of that. Um and so yeah. Yeah. And the, the sort of combination of these things has led a lot of figures on the right. You'll see it in that thread. I think Robert shared it and I shared it of like these dozens of TikToks talking about civil war that came out the, mm. the day after Trump was raided. They talk a lot about IRS raids and about people coming for their for their guns and their short barreled rifles specifically, uh, which I think is the combination of these things leading to this sort of again, like it, it, it's. If if you misunderstand each of those three things completely, you get to the conclusion that the uh, the IRS has hired eighty seven thousand armed shock troops and they're coming after yeah. your AR pistol, which is not true. But uh, that narrative has definitely been sort of spread around, and again, it's not exactly decreasing the temperature. No, I mean, just uh, I think today uh, Trump was on Fox News Digital. And he said, uh, people are so angry at what's taking place. Whatever we can do to help, because the temperature has to be brought down in the country. If it isn't, terrible things are going to happen. The people, of this, <laughs> the people of this country are not going to stand for another scam. So, huh, I wonder what he meant by that. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, boy. Yeah, I, I, I guess, like... The, the the other thing that I mean we kind of touched on, but I think is like important to understand is the extent to which like Trump is kind of a singular figure in his ability to actually get a bunch of people to do a thing. 
and like i think that like that that power i think is reduced since you know i'm mean, like he's not he's not present anymore right like his it's reduced to, like, since j6 yeah since j6 yeah. but yeah. like you know he he still has the ability to mobilize like ability to mobilize parts of the right that like you're sort of like weird neo-nazi guy like can't yes and yeah he like you know and like he 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 seems to be aware of this and he seems to be aware that like you know he can use his either use this as a bargaining chip or use this to sort of like threaten people but yeah like that's a real thing like it, it is a real thing that there's an incredibly large part of the country who like if donald trump told them to like go die for him on normandy beach or something like they probably would yep yeah, and, uh, yeah, the FBI and DHS in their memo also warned that uh, the 2022 midterm elections in November could be seen as an additional flashpoint in which uh, oh, really? these will continue to escalate threats against perceived ideological opponents, including federal law enforcement personnel. So stay tuned. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Woo! It should. If people haven't realized, by the way, it was Breitbart who named the FBI agents. Uh, yeah. Obtained the warrant. Yeah. Didn't bother to Google what their jobs were. They were like, what is what does this acronym stand for? No one knows. It's very secret. Top journalism there. Yeah. Well, good. We seem to be in a nice place then. Mm-hmm. It's going well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, start organizing now. Uh, mm-hmm. the, yeah. the, 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 the best time to start this was yesterday. The second best time is now. The third yeah. best time is tomorrow. And don't don't let them take how funny this is as well. Though. <laughs> oh, this yeah. is pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there is another lesson here, which is that like there is an enormous amount you can get away with politically as long as it's funny. And like, fr- frankly, we 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 have we have not been utilizing that to its no. full potential. The left and like anarchists in general have forgotten how to do good funny shit uh, for the past ten years, and we have to bring it back. Yeah, it is. It, this is. We've been given a precious gift in how funny this is, and yes. you, we have a couple of responsibilities, and one of them, of course, is to to organize in order to be prepared to to counter increasing like attempts to impose an authoritarian violence on us. But another thing that it is response that we have a responsibility to do is laugh at how funny this is, and make sure that other people don't forget how funny this is. So go out into the world and remind somebody that a fucking Trump nerd tried to take on the FBI with a nail gun and an AR-15 and died in a fucking field in Ohio. Because that's pretty funny. It's pretty funny. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to fifteen hundred dollars again sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and game sense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park that's 1-800-GAMBLER 
Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Welcome to It Could Happen Here. I'm Andrew of the YouTube channel Andrewism, and I'm here with... Oh, it's me. It's Christopher. Yeah, we're, 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 doing, we're, we're, we're doing another episode of me and Andrew... Yeah, we've seized the pod once again. It is too early in the morning for anyone else to be here, <laughs> which gives us ultimate power. But too early in the morning, I, I, by the way, it's it's eleven Pacific time. But yeah, there is there there is no prayer of anyone else being around for this, so we are now in control here. Mwahahaha. Yes, we're doing we're, we're doing we're 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 doing the maniacal laughs. We're doing the podcast. <laughs> We're doing the podcast. <laughs> welcome, welcome. Uh, we want to finish the story, the soldier's story, that is Kuasi Balagoon's life and legacy. Um, where we last left off, as part of the New York City Panther 21 trials, Kuasi was put in jail. Um, at the same time, he was also developing his political um, identity, in a way and recognizing some of the issues he was having with the Black Panther Party, and particularly after the East Coast-West Coast split that occurred. Kwasi, as we, as we covered last time, was born Donald Reams, but took on the identity of Kwasi Balagoon due to his recognition of his Africanness, of himself, um, through his experience in the army, through his experience in London, connecting with the Black Diaspora, and through his connections with the Yoruba Temple. And so Balagoon, alongside that, that personal recognition and political recognition of his anti-authoritarian politics, also comes to see himself as someone who is at war with the state. And as such, once in jail, he sees himself as a political prisoner, as a prisoner of war. While in prison, 
The Panther 21 were incarcerated in a variety of jails in different boroughs of New York City. But Balagoon, Lumumba Shakur, and another defendant, Kwando Kinshasa, they were all incarcerated at the Queen's House of Detention, and they organized an uprising that took seven hostages, including a captain, five correctional officers, and a black cook, holding them from October 1st to 5th, 1970. The slogan of the multi-ethnic takeover, which, by the way, is pretty unheard of in prisons, where black, Latino, and white inmates come together, um, their slogan was all power to the people, free all oppressed people. And so their primary demand was for speedier trials. And in this process, Balgoon again developing his anti-Thurgian politics, slowly, you know, crewing towards what he would come to define himself as, decided not to play a vanguard role in this uh, decision-making process, in this uprising. Even before he formally declared his commitment to anti-authoritarian politics, his primary concern was consensus for all inmates in decision-making, including access to food being brought from the outside. And so that sort of consensus process also helped build, you know, his identity. The prisoners, they formed committees to coordinate the uprisings, and they agreed to release two hostages, the black cook and one of the prison guards, as a sign of good faith. Eventually, they had to release all of the hostages, and they also suffered abuse and charges from the uprising. It was sort of a failure. But Kwasi didn't see it that way. While he was disappointed by the outcome, he believed that the power the inmates felt by holding the state at bay for that, you know, limited moment was a valuable experience. It was a learning experience. As an organizer, he saw the uprising as growing pains to those who believed that oppressed people would rise up and seek justice. So as we can see that even with losses, there are lessons to be learned. And this isn't unique to just this one moment in history. In fact, we can apply it to more recent events, such as with the George Floyd uprisings of 2020. It's easy to be nihilistic. No, nihilistic probably isn't the best. You should say cynical and say that, oh, well, the uprising was a failure. Millions of people got up and protested and nothing came out of it, really. And yet, that in combination with the coronavirus pandemic brought people together to establish programs of mutual aid to get involved in organizations in their local situation, to connect with people, to radicalize themselves and radicalize others. It was not a loss, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there's, th- there's an extent to which, even if it's extremely hard to tell in the moment, there's, there's this way in which like, participating in something like that just sort of permanently changes you. And and I, mean, I think I think also in in the sort of context of the prison uprisings, right? Like this is like th- this is by no means like the last prison uprising that's going to happen in this era. And so I think like I don't know. I, it, it, it seems like one of those moments where it's like in in the moment it's like oh we failed, things look bad. But like when in the sort of like broader historical sweep, it's like no, this was like an early uprising in. A period that is going to be sort of like an early domino yeah 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 and and i think that's something that can be really hard to like like especially in the moment it can be really hard to sort of like see that because it's really easy to sort of like 
look narrowly at what your one struggle is doing. And then, you know, but yeah, if if, if you have this sort of like, you know, if, if you have the ability to sort of like see back through history, you can watch how stuff like this just sort of like has this massive effect on consciousness in a way that the people in it even have a lot, have a hard time seeing. Yeah. And so and that's why, like I'm emphasizing the first part, it's really important to develop this perspective and to study our history, you know, our radical history. So we could learn, um, we could both, you know, put things into focus, into perspective, and also look at the specifics of how things played out. So after Balgun's experience in the Panther Party and the repression of the New York chapter, he realized that the party was being turned away from its grassroots organizing of the black masses and the issues that affected them most, the daily survival, the housing, the education, police abuse. He realized the state was using its incarceral system as a tactic by rounding up these organizers, by infiltrating the party, by charging people these high bails and such. It turned the party focus away from liberation to fundraising for legal defense. And so he realized he could not continue, the fight could not continue on this front, that he needed to survive and contribute underground to build a black liberation army as a clandestine freedom fighter. As you may recall from the previous episode, Balgoon was severed from the case of 13 of those who had been arrested originally to face charges in New Jersey. And after the acquittal of most of his comrades, Balgoon pleaded guilty to the charge that he and an unidentified person did attempt to shoot police officers, making him the only one of the 21 original defendants to be convicted. However, on September 12, 1973, Balgoon would escape from the New, New Jersey's railway prison shortly after his conviction for armed robbery in New Jersey. And then eight months after his escape, on May 5, 1974, he was again captured, trying to assist a fellow Panther Party member and defendant, Richard Harris, from escaping custody. They were both apprehended after being wounded in a gun battle with correctional and police officers. And so, what I find interesting about that, he risked being recaptured so he could free Harris. And that's solidarity right there. He yeah. was so willing to sacrifice himself to help his comrades. Yeah. That's admirable levels of commitment. And even though he was imprisoned and was disillusioned with the Panther Party, it never discouraged his involvement or commitment to revolution. While incarcerated, he began to explore anarchist politics. He received and studied literature from solidarity groups like the Anarchist Black Cross, which is an anti-authoritarian organization that provides material and legal support to political prisoners. And I remember when I was reading this, I recognized that name, Anarchist Black Cross, the ABC. I know that because they also helped Lorenzo Cambo Irvin to be released from jail. They also provided him materials when he was incarcerated. And so <laughs> kudos to them for that, you know, helping to connect these people and connect these ideas. Yeah, and the, and the Anarchist Black Cross, if I'm remembering my history right, like has a really, really long history of doing this, going back to like, I mean, I, I I know I know they were negotiating like the releases of like political prisoners and the Bolsheviks. 
Oh damn! I didn't know they went that far. That far. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, if I'm if I'm remembering, and that just goes to show you might not see yourself as doing anything that meaningful. Oh, I'm just sending books to prisoners. In reality, you're building foundations. You're and you know the people who you influence can go on to influence so many more, so many others. So anarchism ended up providing Balakun with a, a great analytical lens to sum up his critique of his experiences in the Panther Party. When he looked at, you know, the works of like Emma Goldman and others and applied them to the Black liberation struggle, he began to ask questions about how his comrades were going about revolution, how by allowing these hierarchies to develop in their organizations, they had weakened their resolve and their fighting capacity. It's like, as he says, um, the cadre accepted their command regardless of what their intellect had or had not made clear to them. The true democratic process, which they were willing to die for for the sake of their children, they would not claim for themselves. So what Balagun wanted was a democratic process that would be established from today. Not that you would have a certain system now and then you would wait until after the revolution to set up a different system. It's like that whole connection of means and ends that, you know, anarchists keep going on about. Yeah. He realized that they needed this democratic process to unleash the revolutionary potential of the masses and not make them prey to new oppressors. The only way to make a dictatorship of the proletariat is to elevate everyone, to deflate all the advantages of power. And only an anarchist revolution has that on its agenda. One of his inspirations was a fellow clandestine freedom fighter, that being Italian anarchist Enrico Malatesta, who exhorted that revolutionary struggle consists more of deeds than words. He read a lot of different political figures and radical anarchists, but especially those involved in insurrection, especially those like Enrico Malatesta, who is also one of my personal favorites. So when reading that, I found that to be a, a fun connection. Yeah, he's so cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he really is. I see why um, why, why Zoe Baker likes him so much. <laughs> yeah. Another influence of his was the Spanish revolutionary Jose Buenaventura Doruti Dumas, who organized the anarchist guerrilla movement Los Justeros, the Avenging Ones. Like their name, Los Justiceros, uh, were thought to be involved in political assassinations against, you know, repression and guerrilla raids on the military forces of the Spanish dictatorship. So people like Italian exile Severino di Giovanni and other anarchists like Sacco and Vincenti. So Di Giovanni was known for his campaign of bombing as armed propaganda in solidarity with executed anarchists Sacco and Vincenti. Durutti and Giovanni both engaged in expropriation of capitalist institutions as a means of supporting the revolutionary movement. And keep that point in mind, expropriation of capitalist institutions. To quote Mickey Mouse, it's a surprise tool that'll help us later. All right? <laughs> another influence was, of course, Emma Goldman, who was another advocate of revolutionary armed struggle, who supported her comrade, Alexander Berkman, to assassinate a wealthy industrialist, who believed in free love, which really resonated with Balagoon because 
I'm not sure if I've mentioned it in the previous part or not, but Balgoon was an openly bisexual man in the 1970s, 1960s, 1970s. And so that commitment to free love that Emma Goldman had really resonated with him. Balgoon also recognized and continued to recognize that black people in the United States were an internal colony of the U.S. And so the black liberation struggle as a national liberation movement. So he began to identify with the New African Independence Movement. The Provisional Government of the Republic of New Africa, the PGRNA, uh, was founded in 1968, March 1968, at a conference of 500 black nationalists who declared their independence from the U.S. and demanded five states in the Deep South, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana, as reparations for the enslavement and racial oppression of black people. New Africa was designated the name of this new free nation. And at this time, Balgoon began to ideologically unite the political objective of the PGRNA for independence um, and, and took on New African as his national identity. As he says, the U.S. has no right to confine New African people to red-lined reservations, that we have a right to live on our own terms on a common land and to govern ourselves free of occupational forces such as the police, National Guard, or GIs that have invaded our colonies from time to time. We have a right to control our own economy, print our own money, trade in other nation, trade with other nations. We have a right to control our educational institutions and systems where children will not be indoctrinated by aliens to suffer the destructive designs of the U.S. government. His position for black self-determination was also combined with an anti-capitalist perspective. The new Africans would enter workforce where they're not excluded by design and where the wages are not controlled by the ruling class and their wealth. And so I think this distinct self-expression is very important because it was a key aspect of his political journey and how he saw himself. Um, the Afrofuturist Abolitionists of the Americas, which is a black anarchic radical collective based in the U.S., um, they coined the term, I believe, black anarchic radical in order to group and account for the different anarchic identities that, that black people have, have identified as. So you have anarchatas, you have um, black anarchists, you have new African anarchists, and then people who just go by bars. And so at this time, I think um, as a new African anarchist, Balgoon was definitely ideologically set apart from the black Marxist-Leninists and revolutionary nationalists of the time who wanted to seize state power for the, from the white power structure of the U.S. And he still desired, you know, a land for black people to achieve self-determination, even as an anarchist. He wanted a space for black people to build a society based on anti-authoritarianism and freedom. I believe he was really unique at that time in that regard. Like other bars, he also recognized the importance of national liberation like Ashanti Alston. He began to recruit soldiers for the Black Liberation Army and converts of anti-authoritarian and new African politics. While in Trenton State Prison in New Jersey, he formed a political study group with 
Black Liberation Army members and Black Panther Party members and started to shift their perspectives on anti-authoritarian politics. And so that political education behind bars became the main vehicle of recruitment into the BLA. Another member of the BLA was Ojori Utalu. Another fairly, I would say, somewhat obscure, um, but still iconic, black anarchist. And when he was providing his testimony concerning Balagoon's influence on his transition from Marxist-Leninism to anti-authoritarian thinking, he said, In 1975, I became disillusioned with Marxism and became an anarchist, thanks to Kwasi Balagoon. Due to the inactiveness and ineffectiveness of Marxist-Leninism, in, community, in our communities, along with the repressive bureaucracy that came with it. People are not going to commit themselves to a life and death struggle just because of grand ideas someone might have floating around their heads. I feel people will commit themselves to a struggle if they can see progress being made similar to the progress of anarchist collectors in Spain during the era of the fascists. Like his teacher and comrade, Udor Lutalo identified himself as a new African anarchist prisoner of war. Balgun would escape again from Rahway State Prison in New Jersey on May 27, 1978, and rejoin a clandestine network of BLA soldiers in alliance with white radicals in solidarity with the Black Liberation Movement. This ideologically diverse network of insurgent militants were known as the Revolutionary Armed Task Force, or RATF. And so it was a strategic alliance under the leadership of the Black Liberation Army that consisted of people of all sorts of different identities. You had Muslims and revolutionary nationalists and anti-imperialists and communists. And Balagun was one of the few, if not the only, anarchist in this whole organization. And so even though he was critical of Marxism and nationalism, he decided to join the comrades he loved and trusted in a common front against white supremacy, capitalism, and imperialism. Me personally... Um, and I have a video on my YouTube channel about it. I am not a left unity advocate, never have been. However, like I say in the video, um, you know, there's still solidarity to be had on certain topics and certain issues. And an important aspect, an important component of solidarity is trust. And so Balagoon clearly had trust in these comrades in order to work with them, you know, it can't just be this broad sweeping thing you see, oh, well, unity, solidarity, unity, solidarity, and there's nothing to back it up. There's no sort of connections or bonds to show for it. And of course, he did have, you know, political friction while in the RT, RATF. His comrades, he saw his comrades as a bit rigid, a bit too rigid in their views while he considered himself a free spirit. And his comrades, um, despite their ideological differences and his sexual orientation, still respected him because of his commitment to revolutionary struggle, because of his history of sacrifices. And so the Black Liberation Army and the RATF continued to carry out the clandestine work of armed propaganda, of expropriations of resources for capitalist financial institutions, and for assisting comrades in escaping from incarceration. At this time, there was an increase in white supremacist paramilitary activity, including the Ku Klux Klan, including the KKK. And so the RATF as an alliance 
helped to the whites in that organization helped to gather intelligence on these right wing white supremacist activities and their connections with the U.S. military, while they also engaged in expropriations to obtain resources so they could build the capacity to resist the white supremacist groups, because these violent acts that the KKK and these other right wing groups were doing in the late 1970s and early 1980s. They were murdering black children, black youth in Atlanta, black women in Boston and in, in Alabama. And so they were committed and organized and doing something about it. Militant commitment to doing something about it. The RATF also um, were involved with the escape of Asata Shakur, one of the most iconic of the Panthers, and also the attempted Brinks expropriation in Nyack, New York. Shakur was wounded and paralyzed from a shootout that they had with the New Jersey State Troopers and had to escape the scene. And as a someone considered the soul of the BLA by the FBI, her capture was seen as a very significant event. And even though she never fired a gun, even though she was paralyzed, she was convicted for the murder of two state troopers who were killed in the shootout. And so she was sentenced to life plus 65 years. However, Odinga, Balagoon, and two white allies, as a armed group, facilitated the escape of Shakur from Clinton Correctional Institution for Women in New Jersey on November 2nd, 1979. And I believe she's still in Cuba to this day. At the same time, the Black Liberation Army was also trying to expropriate $1.6 million from a Brinks armed truck in New York City on October 20th, 1981. And in the exchange of fire that resulted from that attempt, one Brinks security guard and two police officers were killed. And three white radicals and one black man were also captured. Eventually, although he was laying low in New York City in a Manhattan apartment, the Joint Terrorist Task Force did eventually apprehend Balagoon. And so, once again, he found himself in prison. But they did manage to successfully expropriate some funds from financial institutions going back to like 1976. And those funds that they were able to take were utilized to support the development of an underground infrastructure, to support families of political prisoners, to support political activities and institutions for the Black Liberation Movement, and general freedom struggles on the African continent. That is solidarity. After his capture as a new African anarchist prisoner of war for the third time, Kwasi spoke out to the movement for the first time. Again, identifying himself as a new African anarchist, he spoke to the public about his politics and wanted to make his attentions clear. He acted as his own attorney in the Rockland County trial where he was charged with the armed robbery and the murders of the Brinks Guard and police officers. And so he wanted to make an opening statement. And so it went as follows. I am a prisoner of war. I reject the crap about me being a defendant, and I do not recognize the legitimacy of this court. The term defendant applies to someone involved in a criminal matter. 
it is clear that I've been a part of the Black Liberation Movement all of my adult life. And I've been involved in a war against the American imperialist in order to free new African people from its yoke. He wanted it acknowledged that his armed actions were politically motivated to win national liberation, to eliminate capitalism, imperialism, and ultimately authoritarian forms of government. And of course, he was sentenced to life imprisonment. Yet he continued to speak to new African and black liberation forces and to anarchist gatherings through public statements. He advocated continuously for the building of an insurgent movement, the building of autonomous communities. At a Harlem rally for imprisoned new African freedom fighters, his statement was read that we must build a revolutionary political platform and a universal network of survival programs. In another statement, he said, where we live and work, we must organize on the ground level. The landlords must be contested through rent strikes. And rather than develop strategies to pay rent, we should develop strategies to take the buildings, set up communes in abandoned buildings, turn vacant lots into gardens. When our children grow out of clothes, we should have places we can take them, clearly marked anarchist clothing exchanges. We must learn construction and ways to take back our lives. He wanted to challenge people to move from a theory into practice, to define anarchy in the real world, to show the masses models of delivering war to the oppressors and of building a better way of life. Unfortunately, although he struggled long in prison and continuously advocated for the Black Liberation Movement, for the anarchist movement, he died in prison on December 13, 1986, due to complications related to AIDS. So although he's not in mainstream discourse, he's still recognized and respected in some Black, New African anarchist and queer anarchist spaces um, because of his efforts in that time, because of his self-identity in that time. I spoke about him briefly in my video on Black anarchism and the research for that video is how I discovered him in the first place. And I was surprised that he wasn't spoken about so much considering his influence and his efforts and his... He was almost like... And I hate to do this to history, to do this kind of great man things history, but Devine was like a main character. <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> like he was there for the New York Panther 21 trials. He was like dropping rats in Congress. He was facilitating the escape of Asata Shakur for crying out loud. He did so much in his short burst of freedom. Um, and I can't help but respect that. He stood out most places he went. And I can't help but admire that. In 2005, the Malcolm X grassroots movement, which is a new African activist organization, declared its annual Black Orca celebration dedicated to Kwasi Balagoon. And they, in that celebration, they also highlighted the need for awareness of the AIDS virus in Africa and among the African diaspora. A couple of radical hip-hop artists such as Dead Prez and Said Malik have also mentioned Balagoon's name, but his name is still not commonly used enough. Not as much as other black revolutionaries like Huey and Shakur and Mutulu Shakur. Anarchist collectives have also recognized him, have republished his works, um, have, you know, 
put his, his, his writings in newsletters and his trial statements and tributes. And yet, he's still not well recognized. The Quebec Collective Solidarity issued a collected works of Algun's trial statements, essays, poetry, and acknowledgments from comrades titled A Soldier's Story, which you can find in the Anarchist Library. And in fact, that soldier's story is where I drew from for uh, the script for this two-part podcast episode. I think that his efforts, oh, and not even to mention his sexual identity being a vehicle to challenge homophobia within the broader Black Liberation Movement because he showed himself to be committed to the cause and he exposed people who may not have otherwise been exposed to it. You know, the validity and the humanity in our queer comrades. He will forever remain remembered and saluted by certain revolutionary nationalists, radical anarchists, and queer liberation forces. He will forever be seen to me as an iconic maroon. And I can only hope that this podcast helps his legacy to live on and encourages and motivates and strengthens the resolve of people to organize oppressed people, to build a revolutionary program, to challenge capitalism, to challenge racism, wherever they find themselves, no matter their circumstances. And that's about it. This has been a soldier's story, the life and legacy of Kwasi Balagoon. I'm your guest host for this episode of It Could Happen Here, Andrew of the YouTube channel Andrewism. Uh, you can find me on youtube.com slash Andrewism, on patreon.com slash St. and on twitter.com slash underscore St. Yeah, this, this has been It Can Happen Here. Uh, you can find us at Happened Here Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, there's other cool zone stuff. You can find that too. And yeah, uh, dedicate your life to overthrowing capitalism and imperialism. All power to all the people. Peace. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? 
That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. Just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Hey, it's 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 it could happen here. The podcast, the thing that's happening here is that once again, like a bunch of random American politicians are going to Taiwan, and this time they didn't announce they were going. Apparently, because announcing they were going last time went great. So, yeah, this is this is this is what we're talking about today. And uh, with with me is James. Hello, James. How how you doing? All right, I'm wonderful. I'm, I'm splendid. Oh, okay. So we have to talk about Taiwan. And I think like people who've listened to me on this show for a while know that like, so like, okay, a lot of my family is from Taiwan. I don't like talking about Taiwan very much. Um, I, I, I think I've talked about Taiwanese politics in detail exactly once on this show when I was forced to for the Liguana Woods shooting. And like, I would really prefer not to, like, it's not something I particularly enjoy talking about, which is, you know, a big part of what we haven't, but Unfortunately, I can't continue not to talk about it because the American left, and this is true of not just the American left, it's true of the British left, this is true of the left, kind of writ large, is being systematically lied to about Taiwan by a group of incredibly malicious nationalists who are attempting to rally support for their, like, (laughs) incredibly violent and bizarre imperial delusions, and unfortunately it's working. So I'm and instead of that, I'm going to give what I'm going to call Taiwan 101 and I'm calling it Taiwan 101, even though this is going to be like an hour long, because th- th- this is as far as I could cut this whole thing down. Like Taiwanese politics is genuinely complicated It's part of the reason I don't like talking about it. And, you, and people who are giving you simple answers to what's happening in Taiwan are lying to you. This is as best I can do. And it t- this is this is like the length of a bastard's episode. <laughs> so <laughs> Nice. I'm excited. Yeah, so welcome to Taiwan 101. Um, the, the beginning of Taiwan 101 is that Taiwan is a series of islands off the coast of China. And yes, there are a bunch of islands. Nobody talks about this, like, because again, 90% of the people who talk about Taiwan, like, couldn't find their own ass on a map. So, you know, it, they're, 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 there's a bunch of islands. There's one big one. There's several, like, a lot of smaller ones. Um, now, one of the sort of fundamental principles of not just being on the left, but like being a decent person is self-determination. And, you know, self-determination on, on a very basic level is that people have the right to choose how they want to live 
And in a more immediate political context, they have the right to choose how they want to organize their government and who they do and don't want to be ruled by. So, okay, what what, what are the actual numbers in Taiwan say? Well, okay, we, we, we have recent polling from the National Chungchi University's elect, Election Studies Center, which says that a grand total of 6.6% of Taiwan's population wants unification with China. The overwhelming majority of people in Taiwan, 81.2%, want to just maintain the status quo, which, yeah, I guess I should. So, so the, the status quo right now is that, like, China claims that it is the sole legitimate government of Taiwan. Um, Taiwan, like, technically, legally claims that they are the sole legitimate government of China. Nobody actually believes that anymore. Like you, if 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 you scoured the entirety of Taiwan, you might find six dudes in a bunker who still believe that like they're the real government of China. Like the the, the actual status quo is that Taiwan is basically de facto is is like it's, t- Taiwan is de facto a self governing polity that has elections and stuff. And yeah, everyone gets incredibly mad about this. Most people want to preserve the status quo. Um, in inside of the eighty two percent of people who want to maintain the status quo. You have, you know, it's, it's like like twenty five percent basically for for three different options. I uh, basically so there, there's very similar numbers of people who either want to like decide the formal status of Taiwan, like is an independent country, is a part of China. They either want to kick it down the road. Some of them want to keep the status quo indefinitely, and some of them want to move towards full independence like later on. But overwhelmingly, what people want in Taiwan is for nothing to happen. Now, if, if this were a sane and rational world, that would be the end of the episode, right? Taiwan doesn't want to be ruled by China. Like, okay, well, that's okay. That's the right. They have the right to self-determination. That's it. Case closed. End of story. It literally doesn't matter what the, what the Chinese government thinks about whether it should control Taiwan because, again, Taiwan doesn't want to be ruled by China. And I feel like it, as a British person, I... Uh... I maybe I maybe ought to like not contribute further to that discussion. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, and I mean, you know, there's 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 this whole thing that exists, right? Where uh, when 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 you force your rule on another population, it is called imperialism. Yes, and it is. It yeah, is generally considered to be bad. And anyway, and the other thing is, it's still bad even if everyone inside the imperial power thinks that it's good. Like if every person <laughs> in the U.S. suddenly decided tomorrow that they wanted to invade Cuba. Like it wouldn't make it morally right because people in Cuba don't want to be ruled by the U.S., yeah, which we've done before. But yeah, it's true. Yeah, this is partially why I picked Cuba as an example because we re- we did this. We we yeah. really did like kill an enormous number of people trying to. Yeah, based on bullshit that people made up and uh, portrayed yeah. as news that that was at best speculation. So. Yeah. But, you know, as we can tell by the fact that the U.S. has invaded Cuba, uh, we do not live in a sane, irrational world. We live in hell. And this means that I have to talk about a bunch of just absolutely bullshit arguments that a bunch of nationalist dipshits made up to justify imperialism. <sighs> so, all right, th- this is where we start going into Taiwanese history. Um, so th- the starting point of any actual history of Taiwan that's worth a single shit is Taiwan's indigenous population. And it is incredibly important to understand from the outset the indigenous population of Taiwan is not Chinese. They are not ethnically Chinese. They are not linguistically Chinese. They are not culturally Chinese. They are not any of these things by literally any definition of the word Chinese you can imagine. They are not Chinese. Um, this this population, this indigenous population, is Austronesian. It's it's an uh, uh, Austronesian people are a population that stretches basically from like it's it's an enormous group of people across the Pacific. It stretches from like Madagascar all the way to like Hawaii. 
Yeah. And that 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 those are the people who 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 live in Taiwan and have lived on Taiwan for six thousand years. And you know, if if you read like CCP accounts of Taiwanese history, right, you'll see them. They 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 won't talk about the fact that there again, there's been an indigenous population that has lived in in Taiwan for six thousand years. Um, what you'll see references to are like in like the Sui and like Song dynasties. People like sent troops to Taiwan, and, and the CCP people will be like, "Oh yeah, no, they they uh they 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 governed Taiwan and they ruled it. It was a part of China in like ancient times. Like this is all bullshit. Like basically, what would happen is periodically every like few hundred years some chinese leader would be like we should send some people to that island and they went there and were like this sucks and they all left <laughs> but you know yeah and, and and you know like okay so like these guys they're like okay this thing this thing sucks they leave and the indigenous population continues going like you know goes back to do like their normal thing right like this is the the the, the actual history of who has controlled taiwan for almost its entire history is that it was controlled by its indigenous population but in in 1624 Colonial powers start getting more involved, and the Dutch seize control of Taiwan. Well, okay, so the, the, the Dutch take most of Taiwan. There's a part of Taiwan in the north that's ruled by the Spanish, and they do like a bunch of just like horrible, like unspeakable crimes to the indigenous population before they're ran out by like basically like a fragment of the dying like Chinese Ming dynasty. And so, yeah, so in 1662, this guy whose name. Okay, so he has like a name that he's known by in the West that I genuinely have no idea how to pronounce because th- this the name that he's known by in the West I think is a Dutch translation of his title and not like his name. <laughs> it's baffling. I, I okay, like the, I I think the, the the Mandarin version of his title is something like Guo Xingyi. Uh, the Dutch somehow turned that into what what I'm going to interpret as. Koshinga, like it's baffling. It doesn't make any sense. I, their transliteration is is nonsense. But yeah, so there's this guy. You'll you'll see you'll see his name written as like Koshinga, um, and he he's described alternately as sort of like you know you'll see some description of him which will be like he is a loyalist Ming general, um, and that's kind of true, like sort of. Uh, you will also see descriptions of him uh, that call him a pirate warlord, which is like also true. And you you will also see nationalists like Chinese nationalists celebrate him as like an anti-colonial hero and call him like running out the Dutch as like the liberation of Taiwan and like that's not true, um, <laughs> like in the extent to which this is not true. Like I've 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 seen people like from Taiwan like who do stuff with the indigenous population. Like I've I've seen them call I've seen them call him uh, Taiwan's Christopher Columbus. So th- th- this is how this is going. Um, Wait, so are we saying that? Changing from one colonial power to another is it's not liberation. No, it turns out and fascinating. You, you, yeah, okay. you you can tell it's not not liberation because you know like a bunch of people like actually like you know do believe that like hey it's going to be less bad for us under this guy than it is going to be under the Dutch. It, it is kind of less bad. Like there are a bunch of indigenous people who go who fight with uh sure. Koshinga and like you know and he he helps they they help him defeat. The Dutch, but uh, what what he does instead of like you know freeing the people there is he maintains the Dutch colonial system while basically just seizing Taiwan to run his court from, and you know like Dutch colonial rule. Okay, so like Dutch colonial rule is over, but what it's re- replaced by is the rule of an independent pirate warlord state. Okay, this sounds fun. I mean, it kind of is. <laughs> like, I mean, th- there's this whole so okay. So the, the kind of background of this is that like the in the 1600s the Ming Dynasty is falling apart. The Ming Dynasty had ruled China since they overthrew the Mongols, basically. 
And mm-hmm. but like they're they're imploding. There's a bunch of revolutions going on. Uh, they're they are in the process of getting eventually getting knocked off by um, the Qing Dynasty, who are a group of people from Manchuria, who we will be getting to in a second. Yeah, and this guy's like technically a Ming general, but he's sort of not. And he's he's doing this sort of pilot warlord stuff. But then he like he sets up like his own dynasty, like very short lived dynasty there. And th- th- this is the first time that there's been like actual political control of Taiwan by any kind of Chinese entity, right? Like the the the, the like the, the weird dipshit armies that like China was sending in like the Song Dynasty, like they don't they don't actually like set up a government, right? Like they're just kind of there for a bit and they leave. This is the first time sure. like they actually conquer the island and rule it as like a political entity. And even then it's kind of a half ass conquest. Like there's a lot of places they kind of just like they're just like, yeah, okay, we're just not gonna bother with this. But yeah, and, and you know, again, like the, the, this is the first time this has happened, and it, it's not like the Chinese state, right? It's a pirate warlord, <laughs> and his, his his descendants get like knocked off by the Qing Dynasty in uh, sixteen eighty three, and this is the first time like a real Chinese government has controlled Taiwan, um, because by 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 sixteen eighty three, the Qing Dynasty has finished taking over all of China, or all all of what used to be like the main dynasty in China, and. This is the period that Chinese nationalists would point to and say, like, no, 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 uh, really, really, hold on, hold on. Uh, uh, Taiwan actually is part of China because we conquered it in, like, 1683, which, you know. Oh, ignores, wow, okay. Yeah. It's like, Throwing oh, no, no, this is, this, yeah, this is, this is a part of Taiwan, uh, China, since ancient times. Yeah, the, this place we conquered in 1683, which ignores also, again, the previous 5,400 years where Taiwan was ruled by indigenous people. Mm-hmm. It's it's baffling nationalist brain word stuff. Yep, that has worked historically for other countries, notably this one and the one I'm from. But it oh, doesn't yeah. make it right. Yeah, well, and then you'll, you'll get people arguing this is like, well, how like uh, like how how is this different from the U.S.? And it's like, well, here's the thing: I am a leftist, and and I I am I am <laughs> yes. capable of understanding that multiple things can be bad at the same time, <laughs> especially when they're bad in the same way. Yes, like wow, hey, maybe these are all settler colonies. We should destroy them. <sighs> Okay, yeah. but, but we we should actually talk about the Qing Dynasty a bit because mm-hmm. a, a lot of what Chinese nationalism draws from is is the sort of imperial expansion of the Qing Dynasty. Even though the Qing are the Qing are not like a, a Han Chinese dynasty, um, they're like ethnically they're from a different ethnic group. But yeah, I mean it's they're, they're, it's it's the like the, the 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 Qing Dynasty is a Manchu dynasty ruled by the people at like the Manchus out of Manchuria, but. Yeah. I, I, and I think, like, insofar as people think about the Qing Dynasty, they tend to think about, like, the late Qing Dynasty. Like, this is, like, you know, like, the 1800s Qing Dynasty is a disaster, right? Like, they lose the Opium Wars, they get beat by Japan. This is the whole sort of century of humiliation thing. It has a lot to do with, like, Qing imperial decline. But, you know, that that's, like, the 1800s Qing. The 1700s Qing, especially, and the 1600s Qing is an incredibly dynamic... And you know, incredibly militant and expansionist empire. Um, here, here's I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna read a passage from the book Taiwan's Imagined Geographies. Having annexed Taiwan in 1684, the Qing turned its attention to Central Asia, pacifying quote like quote unquote pacifying the Mongols and bringing Eastern Turkestan and Lhasa, the capital of Tibet, under Qing rule. The Qing further expanded its control in South and Southwest China, subjugating various non-Chinese peoples of this region to Qing domination. At its height in the 18th century, Qing influence extended into Korea, Vietnam, Laos, Thailand, Burma, and Nepal, all of which came under the suzerainty of the empire. 
1860, the Qing had achieved the incredible feat of doubling the size of the empire's territory, bringing various non-Chinese frontier people under its rule. The impact of Qing expansionism was thus was thus tremendous, as the Qing not only redefined the territorial boundaries of China, but also refashioned China as a multi-ethnic realm, as a multi-ethnic realm, shifting the traditional border between Chinese Hua and barbarian Yi. In doing so, the Qing created an image of China that is vastly different from that of the Ming. And and I I think I think it's really important to understand what kind of empire this is, which is to say that the Qing dynasty is an incredibly brutal colonial power, even like by the standards of like the like you know okay like all of all like the the. <laughs> Oh, the, 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 okay, Ch- Chinese dynastic history is not pretty, right? Like this is, you know, it's an empire, right? It's an empire. It's ruled by an emperor. It kind of sucks. Like it's not, it's not good per se. But like even by the standards of like Chinese dynasty, the Qing are incredibly militant and incredibly expansionist. Um, for example, like Xinjiang, which which is a province that the Qing conquered. So it, it used to be inhabited by a Mongol speaking people until the, the Qing just exterminated them all and settled the entire land with uh, with Han and uh, Uyghur like ethnic groups. And you know th- th- this history points to something that's important to understand when we talk about China, Taiwan, and the U.S., which is that what we're talking about is three settler colonies. And and I think people, you know, might be like, "Wait, what do you mean China is a settler colony?" And I- I'm I'm just going to read this passage from the book uh, "Sovereignty: Frontiers of Possibility," which is by uh, Julia Evans, Anna Genovese, Alexander Riley, and Patrick Wolf. And and yes, that is that Patrick Wolf who is like. The, who is basically the godfather of settler colonial studies and one of the yeah. most important like academics in terms of like in terms of like advancing the analysis of settler colonialism, like the Palestinian conflict. Uh, here's here, here here's what he has to say about China, and this is kind of a long <laughs> passage, but like I want to include an explanation of what settler colonialism is because I've kind of just been tossing it around. Yeah. Analytically, the case of Palestine reveals that the relationship between the external and internal dimensions of sovereignty is not a priori but contingent. Settler colonization converts external into internal, rendering indigenous sovereignties either non-existent or domesticated. Annexation does the same thing, only it is illegal. The difference, again, is sovereignty. To annex is to practice settler colonialism in sovereign territory. Thus, the frontier is aligned in time as well as in space. Spatially, the frontier delimits unconquered native territory. Temporally, it marks the conversion of outside into inside. It renders externality a thing of the past. Ah, yes. In the global conquest of settler colonialism, therefore, the internal and external dimensions represent the state of play, quote-unquote. The ultimate prize is state formation with internationally recognized territorial sovereignty. Once the settler takeover is complete, the native realm becomes a thing of the past, superseded and detoxified, reduced to persisting in the settler's terms. Since, in the case of Palestine, this process remains incomplete, the situation can still go either, or potentially any, way. At the international level, this uncertainty is reflected in the ambivalent status of Palestinian sovereignty, which remains simultaneously both acknowledged and questioned. Locally, the stakes involved in the resolution of such uh, international uncertainties could not be higher. Tibet represents a case in point. Despite significant informal deference to Tibet's national separateness, its incorporation into the People's Republic of China is not seriously questioned at the diplomatic level. Tibetan representation at the United Nations remains unimaginable, yet even Tibetans might count their blessings when they compare their situation to that of Uyghurs, who, like them, are being officially colonized by Han settlers in the so-called autonomous region called Xinjiang. 
a Chinese appellation that could have been scripted in 16th century Europe. It means new land. Being so much more firmly domesticated within the Chinese state, however, Uyghur sovereignty remains remote from global concern. Now, now, obviously, okay, this was written before, like, Xinjiang became, like, a global news story. And also, I... Yeah. I, the, I, 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 I question Wolf's translation of the word a little bit. Like, I think, I think New Frontier is probably a slightly better translation. But yeah, like, you can see what's at work here, right? Like, Wolf's argument is that, like, yeah, like, the, like Ch- China is running two settler colonies, like, the, the internal status of which is, like, even more internationally fucked than, like, most other settler colonies which is incredibly grim <laughs> like it's <laughs> yeah i think we don't i don't know why we we're so uh we've been so slow to see settler colonialism in these contiguous empires and, well, and like I, here as well go ahead yeah i mean i think part of what's happening here like you know okay like i, th- I think there's sort of a different dynamic with looking at this with russia but i think with china it's like people are just like it's really, really hard to get people to understand that colonialism and imperialism are things that like not that like non-white people can do. <laughs> yes. And especially yeah, and especially like this, you know, the, the, and I think this goes back to the sort of like Qing Dynasty discussion, right? Which is that like, yeah, you know, the, the like the, the, the way that people on the left understand the Qing Dynasty is through the sort of nationalist lens looking at like the 1800s. And so they miss the whole part where they're doing all the settler colony stuff. But like what happens to them basically is that like you know, it's like they're, they're, they're it's kind of like the Ottomans, right? Where like their empire suddenly runs into like newer, better, more violent and more efficient empires. But like that doesn't mean that like they weren't also empires. Yeah. <laughs> like it's yeah. yeah. And then when people do work that out, sometimes like people in, when we talk about like uh, settler colonialism in the U.S., sometimes uh, like when folks are forced to retreat from the the first position and that like that the u.s is not a settler colony they'll then fall back on well there are indigenous empires beforehand as if that somehow justifies that. yeah it's like, like it does not right yes. and like yeah. Yeah. you know like and and, and I, I think this is the thing with tibet too where it's like yeah the 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 the, the pre-existing tibetan government was not good like i'm, I'm not yes. i'm not going to defend yeah. like that government it sucks I, I I would also point out that the whole we're, we're going to stop the slave trade thing is one of the things explicitly in in the in the treaty that was signed at the Conference of Berlin. That was the thing that they claimed that that like that that was the thing that the European powers claimed they were doing when they invaded Africa. So yeah. like when they split Africa up into between the colonial powers. So like you know okay. I mean, also it's you know this this is getting slightly off topic, but it's also worth noting that like the, 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 there wasn't there was actually a communist movement like in Tibet that wasn't the CCP and the CCP killed them all. So that's great and fun. That's never happened before with totalitarian communist powers. Yeah, it's it's never happen again. The sort of I think the stakes of what's happening here I think become more clear when you understand that, like you like the U.S. and China to like two different extents, right? Like I don't know, like China has parts there, like there are parts of China where it's like very hard, to, like it's not a settler state; it's just like their states. But there are parts of China that definitely are a settler state. And then there's the U.S., which is just like entirely a settler state. And then Taiwan is also, too, a settler state, although it's like post-independence Taiwan is the least violent of them, which is like not like a – I don't know. You're not winning much of a prize yeah. by being less violent than uh, China and the U.S., but like, you know, yeah, it is true. A good body count between those two. Yeah. But, you know, but but, but I think this, this brings us back to like the Qing, the Qing occupation of Taiwan, 
yeah. which is that the, the the Qing occupation of Taiwan is China's first of like first new settler colony. The Qing administrators they, d- they divide the indigenous population into quote cooked and raw savages. Um, th- those what? are their words. That literally that's what they call them. Like it is. <laughs> um, yeah. Wh- why? Because they're really racist. Like, yeah. <laughs> like I mean, this this is like this, this is like a very old thing in sort of like sort of Chinese imperial discourse, right? Is like you, you have this difference between like barbarians and like Chinese people and like yeah. savages and non-savages. Like this is this is like this is how these people think, right? And it's sure. not yeah. good. Like I don't know, I don't, I don't know like how how many more ways I can like try to explain to people who are like. <laughs> Who have been like like people have been like telling them Chinese nationalist stuff for so long that it's like this this also was not good like guys <laughs> yeah and again yeah. it's something the U S has done the U K is classic imperialism right like we talk about yeah, civilized tribes in the U S or yeah martial yeah. races in the British Empire yeah um I'm I'm gonna read a, a passage from Taiwan's Imagined Geography indeed as Qing writers began to construct the Taiwan indigenes as two distinct groups negative traits that had been formerly associated with quote the Taiwan savages as a whole began to be mapped on the wild or raw savages where earlier texts claimed for example that the savages quote by nature like to kill or quote were or were quote stubborn and stupid now writers attributed <laughs> these characteristics to the raw savages alone Headhunting, a notorious practice that the earlier that the earliest sources oh, had associated with the natives of Taiwan and other Pacific islands, also became also came to be seen as a raw savage practice. By the early 18th century, travel writing travel writers increasingly emphasized the violent and murderous behavior of the raw savages. The expansion of the Han Chinese population at this time caused an escalation of conflict between Chinese settlers and the indigenes over land and other resources. Hostile indigenes were thus becoming a real threat to the safety of Han Chinese settlers. Although some writers blamed inter-ethnic conflict on troublemaking Han Chinese settlers, many Qing literati attributed the, the belligerence of the raw savages to their inherent bloodthirsty nature. <laughs> ah, so, good stuff. Yeah, it's it's real. It's real. It's real classic empire shit. Like yeah, textbook shit. Yeah. And you know, it's, you, you can see that the, the, there's there's this whole nationalist myth that like you'll read if you read modern people like talking about this, where they'll be like, "Oh, the indigenous <laughs> population, the Chinese government got along so great." It oh, is yeah. completely bullshit. This is an incredibly racist settler state, and it stays an incredibly racist settler state when when the Japanese take over Taiwan in 1895, and the Japanese occupation is even worse than the Qing occupation for indigenous people in a lot of ways. It's a real shit show. There's a huge massacre they do in the 30s. Um, yeah, and and okay, we should also mention at this point. So I've been focusing a lot on the the indigenous population because mm-hmm. almost everyone who tells the story from all sides doesn't talk about them ever because it's it's incredibly inconvenient to like everyone's narrative that there were people here for literally six thousand years. Um, but you know, while basically since the Dutch showed up in the in the mid sixteen hundreds, um. There have been like increasing numbers of Chinese settlers, and as as the Qing occupation sort of wears on, the number of Chinese settlers increases and increases and increases, and it gets to the point where you know kind of kind of close to like what we have today, where like the 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 indigenous population of Taiwan is like two percent of the population, and it's which is you know which is pretty close to what the indigenous population a percent of the population of the U.S. is, for example. Yeah, and we're, 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 we're... Make... sorry, I'm not going to. It's okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I was I, gonna talk about Elizabeth Warren, but I feel, oh god, I feel like oh, god. you know, actually, fuck it, I will talk about Elizabeth Warren in the middle of this because Let's fucking go, yeah, because I mean, her her whole thing of like like, pre- 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 like pre- pretending to be indigenous was also fun because like she has a cookbook. And the cookbook Yo, is powwow chow. Yeah, yeah. That claims both her and her <laughs> husband are indigenous. And then in that is like maybe the most incomprehensibly awful like example of Chinese yeah. cooking I've ever seen in my life, which she apparently stole from like another cookbook. And it, well, it really like just cascading levels of racism all the way down. And it's yeah. oh god. It's fine. It's all fine. Oh, yeah. all the settler colonies are bad their politics are all also always bad because again like being a settler colony inherently makes your politics awful because uh. yeah and representing yourself as an indigenous person to gain personal advantage in a settler colony when you are not one is ongoing yeah. act of colonialism yeah genuinely horrific stuff like yeah don't do it uh, so ha- having said that so okay uh, we have to talk about the Han population. There's like different like subgroups of the Han population who are have different ethnicities, speak different race, like speak different languages. Because Han is like a very large sort of category, mm-hmm. and like inside of Han Chinese, there's like people who are Hakka. There's there's a whole bunch of different groups. Um, and I, I, I guess the one thing that's worth mentioning is that a lot of the like you'll hear people talk about Taiwanese as like its own language. And like, that's like, there, there are a bunch of people who were Han, but who don't speak Mandarin. And so like a lot of people in Taiwan speak Taiwanese, which is a sort of like Hakka, uh, ish language. Well, okay. What's, what, what's, what's the most technically accurate way of saying this? It, it, it is a language that is developed on Taiwan, like in Taiwan by people who speak Hakka. And it's basically pretty close to that. Yeah. Um, and we're not going to get into super granular detail about these ways of immigration. Um, but basically, like, one of the things that happens is that among these sort of Han settlers, there becomes this sort of, like, Taiwanese identity of, like, them being Taiwanese, like, specifically as a thing. And when when the Japanese lose World War II, the Nationalist Party or the KMT just, like, occupies Taiwan. But this is a real problem because, again, most of the people don't want to be ruled by the KMT – because the KMT, like, absolutely suck. Um, if, if you want me to hear me, like, go deeper into them, uh, go listen to my Bastards episode on the World Anti-Communist League. Uh, the, the short version is that the KMT is a genocidal, like, anti-communist death squad party run by an organized crime outfit that's led by Chiang Kai-shek. And, you know, like, they suck. Like, I, really, like, absolutely horrible people. Um, and, and as the KMT starts to lose the civil war to Mao, like, more and more KMT supporters, and also people just, like, running from the war start fleeing to Taiwan. And this develops a massive, like you get these massive tension between the, the Han people who had already been there and the KMT and their sort of new supporters, and their, their new sort of like settler immigrant population. And this boils over into what's called the February 28th incident or the 228 incident. Um, basically what happens, so a, a KMT cop like attacks a woman who is like selling cigarettes on the street illegally because the KMT, like, I, I really also can't, like they're so unbelievably corrupt and so, like, they, they have all these, like, monopolies where it's, like, okay, like, there, there's a guy who has, like, the opium monopoly or, like, a guy who has, <laughs> like, the, the cigarette monopoly, right? And un, un, unless you're running through that monopoly, you can't sell, like, cigarettes. Yeah. And so, in, in something that I think will be familiar to people who, like, uh, like have followed the number of people in the U.S. who've been killed for uh, uh, selling, selling cigarettes <laughs> illegally. Yeah. So, the, the, the cops start, like, beating this woman over the head with, their, with his pistol and everyone around them gets incredibly pissed off. And there's these giant protests. Um, 
And the KMT responds to the protest by shooting into the crowd. And oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, so there's another side of this I should mention, like, briefly, which is that, like, part of what's happening here is, like, there's a, there's a kind of ugly, like, basically race riot that starts happening at the beginning of this, where, like, people, like, the, the sort of, like, Han Taiwanese population, like, starts just, like, attacking, like, any random, like, a, a, any random people from, like, the KMT generation, just, like, they find on the street, they start attacking and killing. And, like, that sucks. Um, it is also just unbelievably less violent than what happens next, which is that the KMT, like, well, okay, so so there, there, there's sort of this race riot thing, and then there's, then there's like, a, there's a full-scale revolution. And the Taiwanese population, like, seizes control of base, of, like, almost the entire island, like, uh, the entirety of the main island, and they start demanding, like, democratic rights and stuff like, you know, a free press and free assembly and, like, the protection of the indigenous population. Although, I should also mention that, like, like nobody really in Taiwan, like, treats the indigenous population well. Like, it was bad enough that, like, my seven-year-old mom was like, oh, my God, why is everyone treating these people so badly? <laughs> like, it's... <laughs> But, you know, okay, so they, they they do this thing, they have this revolution, and then the KMT, like, just sends the army to the island, and they kill something like 20,000 people in a week. Um, wow. Like, they are, like, they are they are cutting people's face, like, they are, like, cutting parts of people's faces off with, like, knives. Like, it is right. unbelievably brutal. And this begins yeah. 38 years of martial law. Um, the, the, the subsequent KMT police state tortures like tens of thousands of people and rules Taiwan with like an, with an iron fist until like the late eighties. And this is where things get really messy, right? Because up until 1942, like nobody in China, like, and, and, and this included both the KMT and the CCP until 1942, neither of them actually claimed that Taiwan was part of China. But then in 1942, both of them start claiming that Taiwan is part of China. Oh, uh, great. Yeah. And, and, and so when, when, when the KMT flees to Taiwan, both the CCP and the KMT both claim to be A, the legitimate government of China, and B, to be the legitimate government of Taiwan. <laughs> and it's a disaster. Like, the, the KMT is nuts. Like my, they, they, again, like they, 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 they made my like seven year old mom sing songs about how they were, they were one day they were going to reclaim the motherland. Like, oh, wow. These people suck. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, yeah. There's some of them still in Myanmar or maybe perhaps not now, but like I've heard from them, from friends who are a little older who were there, that there are a bunch of KMT like living in parts of Myanmar and tourists would go pay to visit them. Yeah. And like they, that's, it's a thing. Like, yeah, they're like, they, 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 most of the people flee that flee to Taiwan, but like they, they break in a number of different directions and there's like a bunch of weird rump states they set up. They get knocked off eventually. It's a, it's a whole mess. But in Taiwan, yeah. like they have this problem, which is that like, okay, so th there's like water in between China and Taiwan. And mm -hmm. if you want to get troops over it, you have to have those troops cross the water. And this is a real problem for like an invasion. So what what ends up happening uh, is a, a series. So like okay, so you you have the KMT and the CCP like staring each other down across these islands, and the product of this is what's called the Three Taiwan Straits Crises. So basically, in, in the CCP starts sell, shelling Taiwan between in, in 1940, 19, 1954, 1955. They start shelling like Taiwan, and then they do it again in fifty eight, and like the KMT shells them back. And, you know, and there's a couple of points where it looks like they're going to invade, but then the U.S. like moves supplies to the KMT to like keep the CCP from invading. And, you know, the, the result of this is this like, I think, incredibly psychologically revealing move after like the 1958 crisis, 
which 1958 crisis ends with the KMT and the CCP agreeing to shell each other on opposite days. <laughs> because, and, and I cannot emphasize this enough, this entire conflict is profoundly bullshit and was foisted upon Taiwan by a bunch of peddly squabbling Chinese nationalists. Yep. Oh, How big is that distance that we're talking about? Like, they're sending shells over there in the 50s, so it's probably not vast. Well, I mean, p- part, part, part of what's happening is, so it, it, it's, it's 100 miles Okay. 110 miles. But what but what's happening here is like they're, 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 they basically like have set up on outposts on different islands mm-hmm. in between like the big island and uh, the shore. And so they're, they're like they're on these islands shelling each other like they they, they drafted my grandpa and like sent him to one of these places. And oh, that's wow. and then he came back and was like, fuck this. We're out. And so like that, that's why my family's in the US because he's like, we're not doing this shit again. This sucks. Like, I'm going to die gonna... for a sandbar. Yeah, I was like, I'm, 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 I'm not going to be I'm not going to be cannon fodder for these like <laughs> weird nationalist psychos. Uh, so. OK, so what, what the, the sort of result of this, though, is that the, the KMT gets the backing of the US and the KMT becomes in Taiwan is the like the legitimately internationally recognized government um like of all of China from the end of the civil war until like the 70s yeah occupies and, the UN seat right yeah yeah has the UN seat i uh, actually we we get we'll get into that in you know what like, we we can do it here so one of the things that happens here is that okay so like the US really really does not want the CCP to have the UN seat and one of the things they try to do is they they offer Nehru's India like the 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 seat on like uh what's it called? Why am I blanking on the name of the thing? National Security Council. The security Council. Yeah, yeah. UN Security. Yeah, the UN Security Council. Like they 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 offer India a seat at the Security Council, and Nehru is like, no, I'm not going to take this. I'm not going to take this. This 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 is China's seat on the council. Like I'm not going to take this. And then uh, Mao repays him by invading India in 1963. In wait, is it 1963 or 1964? Um. This is this is not in my script. I am I am off. I am off script. Oh, 1962. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So like this, uh, this, this goes great for Nehru. Mao just like Uh, invades and the Indians lose the war very badly. To understand why eventually China gets recognized, you you have to to talk a bit about like what was going on inside of the PRC, inside of the People's Republic Mm -hmm. of China. So the CCP fights a war with the Soviets in 1969, which and th- this war gets called the, the Sino-Soviet border conflict. But like this is like a pretty much a real war. Like there are like Chinese and Soviet divisions shelling each other. Like a lot of people die. Um, <laughs> like I, I, I don't know if I've told the story on this podcast before. My, my, my favorite part of this whole thing is that the, the, the Soviets start like war gaming. Can, can they defeat China in a nuclear war? And they figure out that they can't. Because the, the the Chinese population is so dis, is so dispersed that even even if they nuke all of China, they can't kill everyone, they'll, and they'll lose the war in human wave attacks. So the Soviets start developing the, <laughs> developing the strategy of like having like a line of nuclear landmines across the the, the the Soviet Chinese border so that the human wave attacks can't get through because they oh, like the, wow. the, this is this conflict is nuts. Like both China and the USSR are trying to get the US to ally with them to like do 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 a preemptive nuclear strike on on the other side, like. It's crazy. Amazing. And and th- this like completes the Sino-Soviet split. And the US like really, really wants to make sure that the Sino-Soviet split sticks. And so the US starts negotiating with China basically to bring China to the well, okay. There's two ways of looking at it. One is that they, they just want to separate like, you know, the Chinese from the Soviets. The other way of looking at it is that they want to like bring China fully over to the American side of the Cold War. 
And I think the latter approach actually works, right? Um, so uh, in, 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 in 1979, the U.S. Re- recognizes the CCP as a legitimate government of China. Uh, several months later, China invades Vietnam uh, in, in defense of the Khmer Rouge, uh, which the U.S. was also backing. So, yeah. Um, and, and this is where we get into some more diplomatic bullshit. Uh, okay, so China maintains something called the One China Principle. The One China Principle holds that the CCP is the only government of China and that it rules Taiwan. The U.S. has something called the One China Policy. The One China Policy is – it does not take a stance either way on who the government of Taiwan is. What it does is it acknowledges that China claims that it rules Taiwan. And you you will see nationalists lie about this constantly. They will say things like the U.S. recognizes Taiwan as part of China under the one child policy. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Action is a violation of the one China policy. And that's not true. Right. What, what actually happened is the U.S. The U.S. technical term for this is called strategic ambiguity. And you know, so they have this thing like they, they don't they don't formally recognize either side as a legitimate government of Taiwan. They recognize that this is what China says about Taiwan. Uh, they don't actually recognize, but they they, they they have no formal position on whether the CCP right. actually rules Taiwan. What they have is a recognition that that China believes this. And again, this is all diplomatic bullshit. It's part of why I hate like talking about this because, like, again, the the lives of literally tens of billions of people are being governed by like diplomats saying doing like that kind of shit because it sucks. Yeah, so that's that that's that's the one child policy thing, which is not one chi- Jesus, the one China policy, which is not the same thing as the one China principle. Um yeah, and so, and so like all, all the while while this is going on, the CCP and the KMT are in this massive race to see who can kill the most communists. Uh like the, the CCP kills about a million communists in the Cultural Revolution and then invades uh, uh Vietnam to kill even more communists. Uh the KMT, <laughs> like not not to be outdone by 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 their former comrades across the border. Uh the KMT is training death squads in Honduras and like helping the Guatemalan government do the Guatemalan genocide. It's it's really grim stuff. And you know, the 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 product of this ideolog the product of this whole thing is the ideolog the complete ideological collapse of the Chinese Communist Party as like a party that does communism and then the political military collapse with the KMT. So the, the, but, by, by, I mean, it, it's kind of, a, it sort of has already stopped by the eighties, but by the 1990s, the CCP substantively has stopped being a communist party by any sense of the word. Like they're just capitalists and they're, they're, you know, they're out there making money. And by, by, by the late two thousands, even like, you know, th- there had been a faction of what's called sort of the Chinese new left that had thought that like they could, you know, they could, they could, you know, this is still a communist party. We can still change China from the inside. And those guys are like liquidated completely. Like they're just gone. Um, yeah. And, you know, and so, and by, you know, and by, by like now, right. Like it, it's just, it's just, it's just capitalists. And me- meanwhile, in Taiwan in the eighties and nineties, there's, there's increasing resistance to the KMT's like one party, like death squad, like one party state and their whole death squad, like reclaim the motherland politics. Everyone like starts to hate them. And this is where things get really weird. Because on the one hand, the KMT is incredibly anti-communist. But on the other hand, uh, they are the political faction that wants to tie Taiwan to China. And this means that, like, you know, as they're sort of, like, ruthlessly suppressing communists and leftists, they're also, like, vehemently independents. And so, like, they kill a bunch <laughs> of anti-independence organizers, um, which is, like, wow. not, 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 not yeah. how anyone, like, talks about this conflict because it's too weird. So in, in, in there's all these sort of weird political things going on. Um, in, in in 1987, the KMT ends the martial law that had been enforced since the February 28th incident, 
And the KMT like disarms, right? They disarm. They're not as in like, okay, the, the, the KMT used to be a party that would like assassinate people for writing unauthorized, like assassinate Americans on American soil for writing unauthorized biographies of like Chiang Kai-shek. And they kind of stopped being that, like they disarm. They're not really in the drug trade anymore. <laughs> caveats don't quote me on that but like they're 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 not the party they were in the 80s right that's that's okay. sort of the important thing like they they they, lo- they lose their one-party dictatorship and you you get the sort of transition to democracy that ends in the first free presidential elections in taiwanese history in 1996 and uh this like the, right right before this you get the third taiwan straits crisis where the president of taiwan like goes to the u.s and China reacts to this by having an enormous temper tantrum and like starts doing military exercises. Like they start like simulating an invasion of Taiwan. <laughs> they they start like shooting rockets like at the coast. Like they have these rockets that land like just off the coast. And oh, it's edging. Yeah, and event this ends when the U.S. moves like two carrier groups, uh, in, into the Pacific, and the crisis ends. But like, okay, there's a few things I would say here. One is that like, okay, so on the one hand, this is the CCP having a temper tantrum, right? On the other hand, like it really, and I, this is the thing that I think most Americans have never experienced, right? Because the US is not a country that like gets attacked, right? Uh, having another country firing missiles at you fucking sucks. <laughs> yes, like this is true. psychologically, it is awful. Like we saw how insane the US went, like the, like, the first time it had actually been attacked since like World War II when 9-11 happened, like, you know, you, you saw how just absolutely batshit the U.S. goes, right? Like, yeah. Okay. If you are a person in Taiwan, right, which like a lot of my family is, and you are constantly having another country shooting rockets at you, like, it sucks. Like, and I, yeah. and I, and I, and I want people to like, like sort of just like think about that for a second, because like, I, I think a lot of what how how this crisis and how this whole thing is talked about on the left is as a sort of like abstract thing that's like you know it's it's, it's a set of abstract principles right and not stuff that's happening to real people who are like mm-hmm. watching missiles fucking fall into the ocean and right. you know like and what watching another country like preparing to kill them and this sucks um one of the other things that's worth no- noting here is that like Part of what's going on in terms of the hardening of China-Taiwan relations is Tiananmen Square happened. Um, and, and the reason this, this matters is that – so one of the things that like stabilizes, I guess, relations between Taiwan and China in part is the fact that uh, they're both incredibly economic, closely and economically connected to the US. Um, and this is because all of – like all China, Taiwan, and uh, and China are all capitalist countries. And so their ruling classes are all completely interde- interdependent. Like people, people talk a lot about Pelosi like investing in a bunch of uh, like chip manufacturing companies in Taiwan, and that's true. But she also has a bunch of investments in China because, again, capitalists, single ruling class. <laughs> they all, they, 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 they all, all of your logistics lines run through each other. Blah 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 blah. I, yeah. I, I, I will insert a note here that is not in the script. That anytime you hear someone talk about like the U.S. decoupling with their economy from China, they're they are full of shit. Do not like everything they're saying. <laughs> everything they're about to say is a lie. It does not happen. It has not happened. It will not happen. Like I, they're lying. Um, yeah, this is important. Um, yeah. Even know, at but, the height of Trump's bullshit. Yeah, yeah, like like th- th- there there was kind of an attempt to do it and it didn't work. 
because like you know you can okay like you, you, there there are some things you can offer to Mexico right but like most like Ch- China China has a, a a unique combination of a like a really good energy grid for the most part although it's, I mean okay there have been times where it's gotten overtaxed but like it com- compared to most other developing countries it has a really good energy grid it has a population in which uh, actually doing union organizing is illegal and it has a population that you know, like gets forced to work incredibly long hours, right? Yeah. And the the combination of those three things makes it a makes it, you know, a place where if you're an American capitalist, if you're a Taiwanese capitalist, and that's actually part of this too, is that like part part of the reason there's so much like hatred for Taiwan inside of China among people who you wouldn't expect it to be, is that like there's a there's a lot of people in China whose only experience of Taiwan is working for like fucking Foxconn and like working in just in hell conditions for a, a, a like for a Taiwanese capitalist. And, yeah. you know, and that that's very easy to transform into national sentiment and it sucks. But yeah, but, you know, but, you know like, okay, so like there, there, the U.S. has an incentive just to stabilize U.S.-Chinese relations in part because it, it's economically like tied to both of these countries. But when something goes really wrong in U.S.-China relations, like, for example, after Tiananmen, where, you know, and I think it's also worth noting, like, from from the period, like, basically from when China invades Vietnam and even a bit before that, from, but from when China invades Vietnam – in, in 1979, up until Tiananmen, uh, U.S.-China relations are really good. <laughs> like the, the U.S. is seen as like an ally against the evil Soviet evil empire, like this, all this, and, and, and you know, but Tiananmen makes things go really badly because like the the only thing an American ally can possibly do that will sour the American press on them is to shoot a bunch of students in front of the American press corps. Like that that's literally the only thing you could possibly do. Like you can you can do actual genocides and the US press corps won't care. But if you shoot a bunch of students right in front of you, they will get very mad. And you know, sometimes okay. we've we've avoided doing that in Myanmar. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it, uh, it yeah. It's 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 grim. Lot lots of lots of Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, the consequence of this is like, yeah, when something goes really wrong in U.S.-China relations, you get China starts doing sabler rattling at Taiwan. And the effects of this on Taiwanese yeah. politics and also just sort of what's been happening inside of Taiwan is really weird. So the KMT, who have been, again, like the militantly anti-communist party for half a century, for half a century, are suddenly the faction that wants closer ties with the CCP. And... <laughs> The product of this is that the KMT and the smaller, like, hardcore pro-unification parties become known as the Pan Blues. And the Pan Blues are the people okay. who, like, want closer relations with, with China and don't want closer relations with, like, the West. There's, like, the U.S., et cetera, et cetera. Um, and their opposition group is, is, is a sort of progressive opposition groups, which are is just composed of the groups that oppose the KMT's military dictatorship. And these groups form – well, okay – they form a couple of parties. The big party, the first party they form, which is the biggest one by far, is called the Democratic Progressive Party or the DPP. And the DPP and its allies, which include some leftist parties, I think like the Green parties in this coalition. Uh, there's also these like smaller, like radical pro-independence parties. Um, they became known as the Pan Greens. And this is like to this day, this is like the main dividing line in Taiwanese politics. You have the conservative Pan Blues who favor closer relations with China and the Pan Green progressives who favor like closer relations with democracies. And also, I think importantly, the the Pan Greens had this kind of like are, are the people who are in favor of like there being a distinct Taiwanese national identity. And the Pan Blues are kind of more suspect of that because, again, like, you know, their base is the KMT, right? They want closer ties with China and closer ties with China means yeah. not having like 
a distinct Taiwanese identity that's separate from Chinese. And, and okay, I, I'm enormously oversimplifying this, and people who are experts in this will like this part of it will be like it's more complicated than that, and it is. Of this course. is this is the simplest explanation I could give you that people will yeah. understand. Like I, 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 I was like. <laughs> I was debating whether I even wanted to talk about like the pan blue, like closer ties with China versus pan green, like closer ties with the West thing at all, because it's confusing and people probably won't remember it. But yeah, I mean, you know, if you want to understand Taiwanese politics at all, like this is the line you have to take. No, I think it's important to at least throw out the terms that people are going to hear if they're going to engage in any discussion beyond like uh, what has has tweeted. Yeah. And I'm 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 gonna also like I'm I'm gonna like lay my cards on the table so people don't understand my political position on this. Um, and my political position is one that pisses off literally everyone, which is that like I'm not like a DPP supporter. Like I'm I'm not one of the sort of like progressive like groups. I'm not in the sort of like I'm not really kind of like in the sort of like Taiwan independence camp. I'm not really like a, D- a DPP person. I I I don't know like. Uh, but I'm also not a KMT person, like because the the, the KMT <laughs> are capitalist reactionaries. Um, but I also like okay, like I'm 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 I'm, I'm going to do my critique of the DPP, and then I'm going to sort of walk it back a little bit. I uh, I think like Taiwanese progressives in general are way too close to the American security state for me to want anything to do with them, and the ones who aren't like. Okay, the Taiwanese left, like Jesus Christ, get your shit together. Taiwan's most famous anarchist is literally a government minister. <laughs> Like th- this is how fucked the Taiwanese left is. Like, uh, like, like, like these people. Oh God, I'm enormously frustrated by it. Like, these people couldn't develop like a left. Uh, these people couldn't develop a national class analysis if you beat them over the head with a copy of Capital. Um, <laughs> and okay, like I-, I think like Taiwanese progressives will point out, and I think this is fair that it's very easy to criticize like allying with the U.S. when it's not your ass in the firing line of Chinese rockets. Which is true. It is much easier yeah. to criticize the U.S. when the when the rifles being pointed in your face are American rifles than when it's you know Chinese soldiers pointing Chinese rifles. And th- this is a big part of why Taiwanese politics are so fucked. Um, things get reduced to this sort of like democracy versus authoritarian, U.S. versus China, like Taiwanese identity versus Chinese identity to a lesser extent, like binary. But it's like, okay, like my family is Taiwanese, but like I was born here. I grew up here. And, you know, I know, I know what American democracy looks like. It's the army hiring Eric Prince to slaughter Iraqi civilians in Baghdad. And, you know, I also know what, you know, I have a bunch of family in China too. I, I know what Chinese authoritarianism looks like. It's the CCP hiring Eric Prince to build trading bases for mass internment uh, camp guards in Xinjiang. <laughs> like, you know, okay. And yeah. the, the, the only actual like political solution that will ever get anywhere is to fight both of them a position that is extremely unpopular literally everywhere. And like, you know, I, 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 I think they're like the progressives have a good argument that, that, you know, this isn't, this isn't a line they have the luxury of taking, right? Because they, they, yeah. they, they have, they have an immediate enemy and they, they're going to do whatever they have to, to not get invaded. And that means allying with people who like, I want to overthrow and see liquidated as a class. And like, <laughs> I, 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 I understand why they think that I also am not them. So yeah, this is this is this is me laying my cards on the table, and I, I think also like this goes back to the whole sort of like settler state question, right? Which is this sort of unresolved political question in the U.S., Taiwan, and China. Like, no actual major political force has like committed itself to destroying the settler state and returning indigenous sovereignty, uh, like to indigenous people. And you can't have like any kind of liberatory politics in a settler state without that. But on the other hand, like 
okay, the actual politics of Taiwanese indigenous people is really complicated. Like it, it doesn't work in the same way that like indigenous politics in the U.S. does, for example. Like okay. different tribes. I mean, and this is also true in the U.S. But like different tribes have different relations to sort of indigenous nationalism. Like, and, and another thing that that's true about um the that 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 that's true about Taiwanese indigenous people is that a lot of them vote for the KMT, and they do this for a couple of reasons. One of which is because the KMT has this like really really powerful and extensive patronage network that they've been running for literally like basically since they got onto the island they've been running this patronage network and this allowed them to do like real incredibly intense and powerful base building in, in indigenous communities right like they're like the gdp are the people who like distribute like okay they, they have like a center and right you go there and they get they, they they give you like food right like they this this, this is the place where you get your like okay. sesame oil yeah. right and then also yeah. there's the, the, the second layer of the Patriot network right is like if you want to get a job you join the kmt and so they, they, they have these they have these really deep sort of political roots mm-hmm. in that sense and then also um the, the kmt does this thing where they're like Hey, look, the DPP is doing settler nationalism. Like, hey, these are the people who colonized you. Like, fuck them. Like, you should ally with us instead. Which is true. Like, like it, 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 it is true. And like, I think, I don't know. Like, Taiwanese progressives kind of like tap dance around this. But like, yeah, like it is true yeah. that the sort of like Han Taiwanese identity is like sort of settler nationalism. But like, also, this is true of the KMT as well. Like, the KMT are also a settler nationalism. Like, yeah. you know, like they conquered the island and ruled. As you know, okay, and and you'll 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 try. You'll also see people who will take this argument and try to argue that indigenous people voting for the KMT means that indigenous people support China invading Taiwan, and this is just comically wrong. Like they're just they are lying to you. Uh, indigenous people in Taiwan, like literally everyone else in Taiwan, do not support being ruled by China. And the <laughs> argument that a Chinese occupation of Taiwan is somehow less of a settler state than the current system is just like comically propaganda bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah China. Yeah, has not been kind. To yeah, I, I, I'm going to get into like this a little bit too, right? Which is okay. So like, I, I've been trying to be fair and balanced here, right? Like, I, I have been giving yeah. you my critique of Taiwanese Taiwanese progressivism. This is going to piss off a lot of people, but like, having said all of this, China invading Taiwan would be really, really, really bad. Like, I, I cannot emphasize enough yeah. how bad this would be. Like, okay, so t- Taiwan is like a regular, regular settler bourgeois democracy with like all of the sort of good and bad things about yeah. bourgeois democracies, which we're, we're all familiar with, right? Like we, we understand what a, what a settler democracy is. Um, to be fair, the modern Taiwanese government is like infinitely less violent than the modern American government. Like, like the, I, I, I looked at something like the, 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 the prison population in like relative population <laughs> in Taiwan yeah. is like. I think it's like an eighth of the Amer- of what the American yeah, like, yeah. prison population is, right? Like it's it's not like you know, okay, it's it is like Taiwan is not like a sort of like it's like Taiwan is not a socialist state, right? But it's also like you know better than the U.S., which is an incredibly low bar that like you could trip and fall yeah. over. But like you know, okay, it's it's better than the U.S. Um, yeah, you know, it's closer to like Sweden or something in terms of violence, which I think is also a good uh, comparison because Sweden also has an indigenous population called the Sami, and I. Uh, yeah. Uh, all Swedish leftists will uh, studiously never admit that they exist or talk about them at all. <laughs> so, okay, again, this is not a stateless class of society, but it's also like, like since, since, since the KMT has been disarmed, like this is not one of like the world's great purveyors of violence, right? Like it's not the US. Yeah. Um, China, on the other hand, is a ferociously reactionary capitalist settler dictatorship. And this is something that Americans have very little experience with. Um for for a long time, people argued that okay, like if 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 China like if, if Taiwan became a part of China, 
Taiwan would get some kind of relationship similar to what Hong Kong has, where like there were free elections and union organizing and free speech is legal. But you know, twenty nineteen happened. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was even in Taiwan, like the like, I'm sorry, not even 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 in Hong Kong, right? The extent to which like you know, like union organizing and free association and free press existed, were like. And again, like Hong Kong also, and I want to point this out, like the CCP has been strengthening this the entire time they were there. Hong Kong is the only place on earth where corporations have the right to vote and they vote for the CCP. <laughs> like yeah. it's so, okay, this is, this is great. But you know, 2019 happens, right? And guess what? Now Hong Kong has national security law, which allows the government to arrest you literally for posting on Twitter that you don't think that China should control Hong Kong. Um, Secretary of Secretary for Security uh, in Hong Kong, Chris Tang, said uh, earlier this week that criticizing the government with the intention to provoke quote hate intention uh, to provoke hatred quote between the classes was a violation of the national security law. A position that, if actually like that, that if actually like like this, if, if you take this position, this would outlaw in its entirety all socialist organizing. In Hong Kong, because again, anything that attempts to provoke hatred between the classes is illegal. Yep. And yes, you know, so this gives you some panacea of, of liberal democratic no. existence within the, well, I mean, the PRC. Yeah, and this is this is the modern thing. Like you know, I mean, again, like like people people talk about this a lot. Like Hong Kong is one of the world's most neoliberal cities, and the CCP has taken it over. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, hey, guess what? They're 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 living out the neoliberal dream of making it illegal to try to do any like try to do like class war stuff. Um. One of the things that happens immediately after national security law is that it's used to destroy China's China's independent trade union federation, and th- this brings us to like the, the sort of class perspective on this. Um, independent union organizing in China is illegal, and when I say it's illegal, I don't mean illegal in the sense of like jaywalking. We're like, okay, if someone if if like a cop sees you jaywalking, they might arrest you. Like, if you try to do independent union organizing in China, men will show up to your house in the middle of the night. And you will disappear for three months until a video of you with two very large men standing just out of camera range appears in which you recant your organizing and apologize for your crimes. Like to, 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 to get a sense of the level yeah. of oppression we're dealing with here, two Chinese leftists named Liu Yu Yu and Li Ting Yu recorded and published a series of protests. Like they, 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 they basically they had they on the Chinese social media, like they, they posted this like record basically of strikes and protests that were happening in the country every day. So like literally all they're doing is they are documenting the strikes and protests that are happening and collecting data about them and posting it. Um, In 2016, the police showed up to Lou's house, put a bag over his head and dragged him away to a dragged him away to a jail cell. Uh, Lou spent four years in prison. Uh, Lee got two years and the two of them never saw each other again. So again, this, this is what happens if you literally just report on the wildcat strikes that are happening Someone will put a yep. bag over your head and you will go to prison for four years. Like it, it is, it is like the, 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 the situation for organized labor of any kind of anyone trying to do union organizing in China is unbelievably dire. Yeah. Um, now China, and th- th- this is what I'm talking about here is sort of independent union organizing. China has an official trade union federation. Um, the trade union federation of China has is such a fucking joke that it is literally a matter of academic debates. Like there are academic papers arguing about whether or not it even actually counts as a union. And this has been true since the late 1950s when the CCP decided that, uh, oh, hey, this trade union uh, is there to represent the party and not workers. And its role is to mediate between uh, the, the, you know, to mediate between the party and uh, workers, not actually to, you know, like represent them when they like when they have yeah. disputes with their bosses. So yeah, like they don't like they they, they don't they don't go on strike like ever. 
like they 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 exist as like another part of the party state the the goal of which is to make sure that bosses keep making money and if you try to work outside of it they will arrest you now taiwan is not like a shining workers paradise right the the sort of vaunted semiconductor industry that everyone talks about is run by a bunch of workers getting the ship burned down to them by vats of acid but conditions for the chinese working class are even worse Taiwanese wages are higher. China, Taiwan has better workplace protections. Again, you can legally organize unions. Uh, meanwhile, in China, there are famously suicide nets around Chinese factories because working for these places is so fucking awful that people would literally rather kill themselves and live in it. And, you know, you can ask, why is this happening? And the reason it's happening is that a lot of the stuff that is literally the worst fucking nightmare of the American left, things like your boss owning your apartment it's just standard practice in China. This is just, this is just this is just what it's like to be a worker in China. Your boss owns your fucking apartment. You have literally hundreds of millions of people who live in these tiny, like they're called workers' dormitories, which again, often literally owned by like the owner of the factory they're in. You get like and when I say like the workers' dormitories, right? It's not even like it's not even like an American dorm building, right? Where like you you know you have like your own room. It's like it is the barracks. Like, yeah, like it's it's a bunch of people sleeping in cots, like like sleeping in bunk beds with like a fucking bucket next to them to go to the bathroom. Like it is it is horrible. Yeah. Um you have like like the the, the I I talk about this a lot in this show, but again, like literally there are payday loans integrated into delivery apps. Like this, this is the level of capitalism that, that China is. And like I I'm not gonna yeah. like get, I'm not gonna like argue that it's worse in the US. I think they're bad in different ways. Like there, 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 mm-hmm. there are there are like the the U.S.'s incarceration system is like, you know, like one of the great yeah. human evils in the entirety of human history, right? There, there are things that like the U.S. is worse at. Like the Chinese police are a lot less likely to just fucking murder you, like you know. But like yes, th- but like China, the, it sucks to be a worker in China. Like it, it really yeah. sucks, and I can't emphasize this enough because I don't because people don't really understand this, like. They, they like pe- pe- people do not understand that again, like the normal Chinese schedule is called 996. You work 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. This is the normal schedule. Most like, a lot of workers like that, 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 that again, that, that, that's like an average schedule. Most people work more than this. 996 is 70 hours a week, right? Like it is, it is, it is a shit show. And yeah. If, if if Taiwan if China invades Taiwan, the conditions of the Taiwanese working class are going to get worse. That is just a fact. Chi- like imposing Ta- Chinese law on Taiwan would strengthen the power of the capitalist class and weaken the proletariat. Um, fr- from an indigenous perspective, which we, we've talked about this at length about you know we talked about at length how the Taiwanese system is not that good, but you know it, it's not like it's a settler colony. There's some representation, but you know it's not great. It is much better than the CCP's system. The CCP's line on ethnic minorities is that if you're an ethnic minority in China, you're going to work in a Han factory. You're going to pick crops from Han-owned fields. You're going to dance and smile for Han tourists. If you step out of line, you will be dragged out of your bed in the middle of the night and sent to a fucking camp. There are, you know, like this is the thing that Americans sort of have similar experiences with. It's like, you know, you have immigration raids. You have raids on uh, homeless encampments. But – it's not that's and that that's like you know that that's a kind of experience that is somewhat similar to what it's like to live in Xinjiang, but like it's not exactly the same. Like, I I know people whose families are just fucking gone. Like the police showed up in the middle of the night, and their families are just gone. They've never seen them again. Like they're they're just gone. No no one knows where they are. No one knows if they're even alive. They've just vanished. And if and if you think that this isn't going to happen to Taiwan's indigenous population, the moment they start talking about self-determination, you are incredibly bafflingly, hopelessly naive. And, you know, like, like there, there's a lot of other shit that you can point to, right? Like, for example, Taiwan has gay marriage and China doesn't. Like, 
the, the, the degree of press censorship, just like social media censorship in China that doesn't exist in Taiwan is like absolutely absurd. Like, you know, I, 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 I think like most like some people talking about press censorship in the US are like almost always right wing shitheads who are complaining about like they yes. yelled a bunch of slurs. Like in China, a very common thing that happens is like someone will be posting about a corrupt local official and then every single post about it will get deleted. And if you try to post the guy's name, your post won't go up. And then any emoji that people were using in association with the corrupt local official, like get blocked and you can't use the emojis anymore. And like, you know, and, and, like, and I, I, I it, it's, it's almost like the, the level of censorship is almost comical to the extent where like people don't believe. Yeah. Like in the US, like don't like, you know, when people talk about like. Like oh the, the the Chinese government isn't really banning uh gay guys who look too feminine and gay guys from appearing in media. It's like no they are like there 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 I think I think it was a Beyonce concert. There 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 was a very famous like very funny thing that happened like a few months ago where there was this concert. I, th- I think it was a Beyonce concert. No, was it Beyonce? Maybe it was. I can't remember who it was, but like. So th- there was a stream of it in China and there was a guy, there was a censor who was like putting like one of those gray out censored bars, like over, the, over the singer's clothes because they were, they were considered too explicit. And he's just like moving this like dot of like censorship <laughs> thing across the stage, trying to fall. Like th- this is the level of bullshit <laughs> that happens here. Like it, it's, it's not a thing that like the U S really has much reference for because like we, we don't experience, like this is not a thing that you don't experience, you'd experience in the U S like, yeah. it's, <laughs> Sometimes I like to think about these things in terms of like, uh, like, like all people talk about Orwell and Huxley as these dystopian novels, right? Uh, and, and perhaps people don't read those novels, uh, but they love to quote them. Uh, and like in, in Orwell's, we have like a, a, a system which like uh, keeps you quiet by pushing you down, right? And in Huxley's, we have a system w- which keeps you quiet by keeping you happy with, with drugs and, and such. Uh, and like it, it's important to recognize that like it, it both things can be bad, but the material conditions and the day-to-day life of people, especially marginalized people in one society, can be markedly better. Yeah. Well, and I think also, like, yeah, like, I think it's, it's worth noting, like, the, the the ways in which the American, like, there, there are similarities, but, like, yeah, like, the, there are lots of ways in which the sort of Chinese system and the American system are differently bad. And that breaks people's brains because you get a lot of like yes. you get you get a lot of Americans who are convinced become convinced that like China is a socialist paradise. There's a Chinese version of this where like you get international students who come to the U.S. for the first time and see an election and they like lose their minds and are like absolutely convinced that like American democracy is like the only stable political system. And they read Hayek and they like lose they, they just like they they become the Chinese version of tankies, which are like weird neoliberal people. And it's like no yeah. like. I, I know, actually, in fact, none of these things are good. Both of these societies are just, like, not good to live in in any yeah. way. And, like, you know, and I, I think that there's another thing I should mention here, like, why all of this sort of, like, bullshit posturing is happening between the U.S. and China right now, which is that, like, on on the American side, like, Biden is trying to distract from the fact that the country is falling apart and there's a bunch of fascists trying to take over and, like, you know, like all of this bullshit is happening. Uh, China is trying to distract from the fact that they have 19% youth unemployment right now. And that like, there are, there are like cops dispersing people doing runs on banks because uh, the, the, it finally looks like the Chinese housing bubble is about to crack. Like it's, you know, this, this sort of nationalist stuff is like for, for, for China and the U S it is this sort of game that they play that has a lot to do basically with pacifying their own internal populations. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for everyone in Taiwan, like it's not a game. 
And that's that's the thing I think I want to close on, which is like the single most important thing here is that there is no way for China to take control of Taiwan except by war. 94% of the population does not want to be ruled by China. 82% of the population of Taiwan wants the status quo. If you try to force Chinese rule of Taiwan, the only way to do it is by war. And seizing and controlling, seizing control of and occupying a place with 23 and a half million people is going to be a bloodbath. There's no other way to do it. Even if you are, I just want to leave this as sort of a message to people who like, who don't agree with me on this, which is that if you've gotten to the end of this and you genuinely believe that Taiwan is part of China, are you willing to watch your family get burned alive for that principle? Because that, that, that is what you are asking us to do. You are asking us to watch our families die for your belief about lines on a map. And if, if you are not willing to accept the consequences of your belief personally, if you are not willing to see your family get obliterated by a fucking rocket, then don't push for it to happen to us. And yeah, that is that that is Taiwan 101. Um, yeah. Please, for the love of God, stop doing this bullshit. I don't want my family to fucking die. I, yeah. Yeah, I think that's very well said, mate. Uh, I think a lot of people are so detached from the underground consequences of their like theoretical on Twitter.com positions that it, it can be very easy to be incredibly callous to people who have loved ones skin in the game. Yeah, and and I think I think this is the part of it. Like, no, like ninety nine percent of the people on Twitter are posting about this. Have, they have no stake in this whatsoever. It doesn't matter to them. Yeah. If everyone on if everyone who lives in Taiwan died tomorrow, it would have no material effect on them whatsoever, right? Like the the worst thing that would maybe happen to them is it would be harder for them to get graphics cards. <laughs> yeah, compared like, to losing your entire family. In yeah, a horrible, like horrible this work. is this is this is twenty three million people, an enormous number of whom are going to die if this thing happens. So yeah, d- like. Un, un, like, un, 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 unless you are committed enough to this to kill your own family, then fucking stop posting about it. Because that, 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 like, if, if you are not willing to materially accept the consequences of your own position on yourself, then you shouldn't have it. Yeah. Especially when you're pretending to be a leftist. Yep. Yeah. yeah, that's, this is, this yeah. is when it can happen here. Uh, it's, yeah. <laughs> Don't don't have a Chinese invasion of Taiwan happen here. Yeah, yeah or over, over, overthrow your local settler colony. <laughs> yeah, settler colonialism is bad. That's the uh, official stance of. Yep. Actually, I'm not. I'm not sure if we can legally. I, th- I think. I think we can legally say this is the official stance of Cools of Cools on Media. I'm pretty sure we can't legally say it's the official stance. Yeah. Of yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe cut that down. I need. Yeah, (laughs) we'll say yeah. Here at Cool Zone Media, we don't endorse settler colonialism. Uh, Yeah, don't do it. War is bad. Don't rocket cities. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast where we occasionally have introductions, and mostly we have this. And uh, yeah, the, the, it's, it's the podcast. Things fall apart. Things come back together again. They fall apart again. We put them back together again. Yeah, you, 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 know, you know the drill. Um, yeah, and with me is James. Hello, James. Hello. And speaking of things falling apart, uh, we're, we're talking today about the what, what, what it looks like when this sort of con- the interconnectivity of the American judicial system comes apart under the weight of uh, uh, dueling abortion laws. And with us to talk about that is a lot of people who have written a lot of very good stuff about this. So with us is Alejandra Caraballo, who is a clinical instructor at Harvard Law School Cyber Law Clinic, where she works on the intersection of gender and technology. Hello. Hi. Welcome to the show. Um, We also have Michelle McGrath, who is a public defender in New York City for like almost a decade and specializes in bail and parole litigation. Michelle, welcome to the show. Hey, happy to be here. And finally, we have Yvka Pierre who's a senior litigation counselor uh, where she works at the intersection of reproductive and criminal law, and she is on cases where folks are criminalized for their pregnancy loss. So, Yvka, welcome welcome to the show as well. So, y'all have written... Actually, I don't... It, it, it occurs to me that it's been long enough. It, this is still not published yet, right? Yes. It's, uh, so, it's basically... We submitted it to CUNY Law Review and we're waiting for edits. We expect... Our law review article to be published in December. Um, so, uh, but you know, we've we've basically created a TLDR that we we uh, collaborated for uh, Slate. So we, you know, there's a 1,200 word article on Slate that you can read that kind of condenses down our article 
from like 25,000 words as much as we can. Do. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, we, 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 we were graciously provided the, the, the long one. And so we read the long one. We're going we're gonna to talk about it because yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a really interesting look at, I don't know. There, there's a lot of sort of points of, okay. So I, I guess we should rerun and, and talk about what this actually is, which is that one, one of the things that's been happening in the last, I mean, basically since Dobbs is a, a, a series of questions about what, okay. So it's a series of questions about what happens if you are in a state where abortions are illegal and you go to another state and you get an abortion there. And yeah. And there, there's lots of jurisdictional questions here and yeah. And this article is a very, very sort of in-depth and really interesting look at it. And I guess, Okay, I, I, I want to jump into this at a kind of weird place, but I, I wanted to start with one of the things that one of the things that's in this article that's I haven't really seen much discussion of is about the way that the sort of safe harbor laws that states have been setting up are being like if, if well okay the, the the way that they can potentially be in the way that previous safe harbor laws for immigration stuff were sabotaged by the fact that like all of the cops are uh, sending like all of their stuff to each other. So yeah, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that. I guess it's like a lead into it. Yeah. I mean, I, with respect to specifically like how all the law enforcement is talking to each other, I think Alejandro might know a little more with respect to that. But when it comes to the way these laws are being written, they're, they really don't, have the kind of teeth that sort of the politicians are spinning to the public. They're sort of letting folks think that, well, we would never, we in New York would never send you to Texas for anything related to the criminalization of a pregnancy loss. Um, and because of the way the law of extradition works in the United States, which is actually a constitutional law, um, it, it, it's going to be hard in a lot of ways for them to resist that. And so we have our article does talk about a little bit um, in, in actually great detail about how they could actually craft craft laws that would be a little bit different. Yeah, I think one of the things that, you know, this just this past week, there was the story that came out of uh, Nebraska where Facebook provided the DMs uh, of someone who is, uh, you know, being charged with, you know, it, it wasn't even charged with like, like there wasn't a formal charge of like committing an abortion, like the person that was being charged, it was like disposing of a body, like, and uh, basically hiding a body. And so Facebook like released a statement and was saying like, well, we weren't told that this had anything to do with an abortion. And like, that's the exact problem, right? Is that when states are gonna seek extradition, they're gonna bring charges that have probably nothing to do with it in the immediate, like on its face to do with abortion. It could just be like, you know, they can repurpose all kinds of laws, like endangerment of a minor, right? Like they can do all these things that like would ordinarily like never apply in a pregnancy, but they can just kind of do it just to bring charges. Um, and so, you know, um, my colleague who, who's unfortunately not here, uh, Cynthia Conte-Cook has, has written about this excessively about like the criminalization aspect. But in terms of like how, you know, these, these safe harbor states and you know, these laws like are going to be very difficult. I think it is just really what we're dealing with the effects of surveillance capitalism, right? So like Facebook turned over these DMs 
Facebook has been in the process of moving to end-to-end to end encryption, which basically would have made this impossible to do in the first place because it would have been similar to Signal. But what Facebook did is because they realized that they would have lost access to data around people's messages and what they're talking about, they made it optional instead of by default. And so most people who are not very tech savvy or very familiar or understanding of you know, who has access to the messages and whether the government can get access, they might not know that they can set this to end-to-end end to end encryption. And so essentially, like in pursuit of profit, Facebook doesn't enable this privacy feature. But this is the exact same kind of stuff, right? So like Facebook has access to this data, but there's also this whole shady system of data brokers that gets access to all kinds of data. And that's exactly how I think what you alluded to when you asked this question about ICE having access to basically all this information on immigrants that states had swore they would never share with federal immigration officials. Like ICE has built, basically built this entire shadow system where they're purchasing data about driver's licenses and all this stuff basically by pur purchasing it on the open market. And that bypasses all kinds of formal data requisition requests, warrants, subpoenas, all of those things that would normally be required because it's just freely available. So, you know, so, suffice it to say, as much as these states may want to protect things on that end in terms of data, it's going to be incredibly hard to do so. And I think the, the, the previous efforts around uh, safe harbor for immigrants um, and asylum states and, and things like that, um, it's just going to be really hard to enforce in practice. However, on the um, extradition side, when, when like criminal charges are actually brought, that there, there is some things that states can actually do to help protect the, uh, folks who are caught up with any kind of abortion-related charges in their states. Um, I just also want to jump in to say that the system works the way that it works because nobody's monitoring it. So when we're talking about law enforcement officials that are talking to one another and getting information through very informal means, right, things that probably by the book would take a warrant to go from one place to the other, just takes Marcy calling over Janice that works at the other system and getting something faxed over. Even if they're not doing it out of malice, it's just, oh, this is out of convenience. It makes life a lot easier to get information from this place to that place. And folks have these informal systems that are set up that even when the law says that they cannot do it, if we don't have safeguards that I hate to say go after people because it seems so carceral, but like that protects what the intent of the law is. It has no teeth, right? If your law doesn't stop Marcy from calling Janice and getting information on someone that they're not supposed to have, then your law doesn't matter. It's kind of in a nothing sandwich, right? Um, and I have plenty of thoughts and stuff to say about the criminalization when we get there later, because that's a lot of my work. But I, I, I think that gets to what Michelle and Alejandra and what um, Conti, who's not here, have found. It's just, you got to have something more than nothing sandwiches, something more than something that seems good on the surface and doesn't actually help the people that we want to help. I, and I want to sort of help folks sort of understand how this plays out on the ground. So in the article, we we give an example, right? So maybe I've got a New Yorker who gets prescribed a uh, medication that would induce abortion. And, you know, they bring it to their friend in a state where that's criminalized and they give their friend the medication. The pregnancy ends, maybe the person is concerned and they, they go to the hospital. 
Um, quite often nurses and doctors are part of the criminalization process. And so, you know, maybe they call law enforcement official uh, based on this information, they get a subpoena for that person's phone. So now they're in the phone and they can find out, wow, they got this medicine from the New Yorker. Well, now, now the person who uh, took the medication perhaps is charged with homicide, right? I think what's key here is that they're not necessarily going to be charged with abortion. Maybe they're charged with homicide. They're charged with infanticide. And guess what? The person who came from New York is now probably going to be charged as an accomplice. So now we have a warrant for, uh, for a homicide for the person in New York. Because of all the national databases that we have, the NYPD, the law, any of the law enforcement in New York is going to see, oh, that New Yorker's wanted for homicide. Let me go get that person. Um, and so when then that person comes in front of a judge, even though New York is saying or Connecticut is saying, you know, we're not going to give any resources to extradite someone related to the termination of pregnancy. Well, they're just being brought before law enforcement in front of a judge who sees uh, that they're wanted for homicide. Right. And so on the ground, these laws don't have anything to stop them. And, and so we've sort of suggested things that involve immediate right to counsel. People need to be released for extradition. Um, and we can talk about some of those more. But I think it helps to sort of give that example to see how it's happening, how it would happen in real life. There, there's something else I wanted to sort of talk about with this, because one of the things that, that on the sort of surveillance front, has been the way in which like what we're seeing now is sort of the culmination of like a bunch of the, the types of surveillance that have been inflicted on a bunch of different groups of people. You have the anti-sex worker stuff, you have the, the surveillance, the surveillance stuff that's been used against immigrants. You have uh, the sort of post nine 11, like, I mean, this is where the sort of fusion centers um, come from is the sort of like post nine 11 security state buildup. And then you have the stuff that's been used to go after activists. And I think, that's been really interesting to me to sort of, I mean, incredibly like depressing too to watch has been, yeah, like, I don't know, like, I remember like the, like one of the things, if you, these fusion centers were like all of these sort of like uh, law enforcement agencies, like share information with each other. Like, I don't know, like I, I remember in 2020, like they were like sending one of my friend's tweets around because that was one of the things they were doing to like go after people during the protests. And like, I don't know. I I I, I was interested in, in in this question of of these fusion centers because it's it's this I don't know. It's this real sort of like like it it it, it really seems like the the sort of like the the next step of where all of this stuff goes is you know the fusion centers becomes becomes this place where it's really really easy to bypass the law because you know all of this stuff is just getting shared anyways and it, it brings up this other problem which I was interested in which is about like. To, to what extent can the state even control law enforcement? Because, like, okay, like, law enforcement are those, like, <laughs> cops in general, uh, very reactionary. There, there's, you know, if, if, if you, you know, if, if, if you go back into the history of, of the anti-abortion movement, there's a lot of them being, like, aided and abetted by the cops. And I was wondering, I don't know, what, what you think about, like... <sighs> Like what, what? What do you even do if the cops just decide they don't want to follow the law at all, and they're just you know they're just gonna, they're just going to keep passing information on no matter what you do? I, I think Alejandra and I would probably uh, 
differ on views about where things are going next, probably just because of the nature of our, our work and the things that we're dealing with the most. So this is going to be fun. So I, I actually think, so what, yesterday, two days ago, whenever this airs, however many days ago, one of our colleagues at If When How, my colleague Laura Huss, who's brilliant, um, has been working on this research project for like the last two years, tracking cases of when folks are criminalized for self-managed abortion. Why self-managed abortion? Because that is the abortions that were happening outside of clinical spaces, right? That were there were always questions about who can be criminalized for self-managing their care. There weren't as many protections in the law for a lot of helpers and things like that in self-managed care. So when her and her team looked at this data, um, what they found was that the biggest risk of criminalization didn't actually necessarily come from um, external forces looking at big data, right? But was actually like the hell is other people because what they were finding was that nearly the majority of cases of folks coming to the attention of law enforcement was coming from medical professionals. So I, I want to say I have the numbers in front of me somewhere. It's, um, well, so it's something like 45% of folks that were reported to the police were reported by some sort of medical professional, whether that's a doctor, a social worker, a nurse, or whoever that was at a hospital when they were seeking care or they were getting prenatal care at some point when they found out they were pregnant. That's how they came to the attention of law enforcement. Another 25, 26% of those folks that came to the attention of law enforcement came to people that they told information to, that they entrusted, whether that was a family member, a partner, a former partner, whoever the heck, right? So what we're finding is that the vast majority of people that came to the attention of law enforcement was because of folks, like actual people that had the information. And then that turned into them being individually targeted by police. And then that turned into their data being mined on their actual physical devices, not like big brother down, but small brother up. Right. So I, uh, when I certainly think about kind of how big data can be used and manipulated and like absolutely messed up to do a dragnet of folks, that's always kind of a possibility that's swimming. But I think the immediate possibility is like, how do you protect your individual data on your individual devices? What safety plan do you have in place about how you use the internet wholesale? Because I'm a lawyer, I can't tell people to commit crimes, but I can tell people to be very careful about how you manage your devices and how you manage information. Who do you tell your business to? Full stop, right? Because that's how folks are coming to the attention of law enforcement. But can the laws control cops? I think what we generally see is like, probably not. Um, but will the courts respond to cops that work outside of the law? I think the lawyerly awful answer is it depends on the jurisdiction that you manage to find yourself in. Yeah, I think I think Eve just hit it right on the head. Um, you know, in cybersecurity, your weakest link is always the human element. So like, that's always going to be the biggest concern, right? Like, who are you telling about any of this? Like, who knows about it? Um, like, you know, it, you know, on a tangential issue, like with, with gender affirming care in Texas, like one of the one of the plaintiffs in the lawsuit against Texas, like, one of the trans boys like that, that was like, you know, found out about, you know, uh, Governor Abbott's letter to like basically equate gender affirming care as child abuse, attempted suicide. And then when was taken to the hospital, the hospital staff then made a report to like the Department of 
Yeah. So, I mean, this was all in, in oh. the ACLU's lawsuit. And it's like, it's just insane, right? So like, that, that's exactly the, the thing. Like the, the biggest risk is always going to be the human element. Like your, like the doctors, the nurses, your friends, like family members, you know, it, it, and it might even be people like you deeply trust. You just never know. And so that's always going to be an aspect. But I think one of the, the biggest risks as well is, is that the amount of data that we have now, like even if that can't be used like in a proactive way to like target people, on the back end, like once you do have that kind of friend turning you in, like all of a sudden they have intent. They have like all of these things from messages. They have location data. They show exactly where you were at what time. Like it's it's just like the perfect surveillance system that basically makes like any kind of reasonable defense nearly impossible, right? Like they can show where you were, who you talked to. Um, and so like, I, I think the, the best tweet that I saw about this is from, from someone who, who works at Digital Defense Fund. And they're basically like, they're, um, or, or actually it might not have been them. I just remember it was just like, there there is no conversation about criminal activity. There is only conspiracy. Like, basically, it's <laughs> like anytime you, you're chatting about any of this stuff, like, it, it's basically like that, that in itself can be potentially considered like criminal conduct. And like, that can be used like as intent and like all these things and like um, in prosecution. So like there, there's all of those aspects. And I think uh, just to answer your, your question, like more broadly on on like what police can be done, like like to be honest, like as an attorney, it's like been very, very frustrating seeing qualified immunity just being like increased, right? Like so, so basically there's been no appetite by the courts to like, like re- remove this doctrine or whittle it away. Actually, it's like being rapidly expanded, especially the aspect around um, uh, federal agents, right? And now, like, there is some... Can, can you explain, sorry, briefly, just what, what that is for people who don't know? Yeah, so qualified immunity basically means that you can't bring a civil rights lawsuit, particularly what they call, like, a 1983 lawsuit, which is, uh, like, the federal statute that allows you to bring civil rights lawsuits against state and federal individuals for um, any kind of civil rights abuses. And it's everything from, like, discrimination on the basis of race to basically you know, the, a cop beating someone, you know, within an inch of their life. So basically any, any kind of civil rights violation is what's called like a 1983 case, which is like the citation to the actual law that like dates back to the, the 19th century, like it's part of um, like the, the Ku Klux Klan Act, which like, so this is a, a long running like civil rights statute that really gained prominence in the last 60 years. Uh, but, you know, it, so basically what qualified immunity does is it basically says, well, if it wasn't a clearly established right when this abuse or violation of your civil rights happened, the the officer or the government official can't be held like liable for it. So basically, like, and the way that they do it is very strictly interpreted. So it was like clearly established right. So it's like, well, it wasn't clearly established right that you weren't supposed to be able to be beaten with a baton. Like, and it's just like, What? Like it's some of these cases get really crazy. I'm not an expert on this by any means, but like I've I've you know read, come across a few, and it's it's absolutely insane. Like how how like narrowly they'll they'll oftentimes like define what like clearly like it's not like you know broadly defined right of like maybe police officers shouldn't be beating people. Um, but you know, and I, I think what's, what's even crazier is that this law review or there's an upcoming law review article by this professor that I was just came across the other day. And like apparently, there is a whole provision of nineteen eighty of the section nineteen eighty three that has been omitted from the federal register for a hundred and like forty years. Basically, like a clerk what? omitted a section, and this law, like this this 
Um, <laughs> like the Sorry article basically uncovered this omission that should have been Jesus. in the federal register. It passed in Congress. I like, but hey, no. if you we did, it wasn't a clearly established right, Alejandra. So does it really apply? I, yeah. the, 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 the the one that I'm like haunted by that I that I read about that was that was one of the disqualified media cases was like there was a guy who got lit on fire by a cop with a taser, and the courts ruled that because there because there hadn't been a prior instance of someone attempting to do like the, you, you don't have a clearly established right for a cop not, not to light you on fire, fire with a taser. Yeah, and you know you, this guy burned to death because again he got lit on fire with a taser. Yeah, and I like mean, because he, because there wasn't a clearly established thing. It's like this is like this is like the worst. Like, yeah, the like, secret a, 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 is like, it's never it's never uh, clearly established. Like like mostly yeah, folks like, lose these lawsuits, <sighs> and I mean this is where. You know, I, I think folks need to recognize, uh, and I say this very much as a lawyer, that the law is not at the end of the day what's going to save us. Like yeah. collective organizing and working together to keep each other safe is because the law is not designed to hold police accountable. It is not designed to keep people out of jail. In fact, it's designed to do the opposite. Right. And I think we're going to see a whole lot of folks start to understand how criminalization works in a way that they may not have realized before. And to your question, like as a public defender in New York City who spent many of those years in the Bronx, like, no, the police are not accountable to anyone and they continually yeah. do unlawful things all day. Yeah. And this is part part of one of the solutions. And again, all of these are stopgap measures so that people have time to plan and plot and organize and 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 do what they need to do. But is that in these states that are saying, oh, we're not, you know, we're going to keep state resources away. No, no one shall use state resources to move someone for any of these, you know, criminalization of pregnancy. Um, but we imagine that law enforcement is generally a rather conservative group of people will simply disagree with that law and probably at times do things anyway. Right. And sure, we can file a lawsuit later, but that's not really preventing the harm in the interim. Right. Like someone's yeah. going to be incarcerated. All of these things are going to happen. And so one of our proposals is that it should be crystal clear that any any state actor who does participate in such extradition uh, can be sued individually. They will have none of this qualified immunity. It will not exist. Now, listen, this seems very reasonable to me and to us. But do I think it's something that a legislature will actually pass? I, I, I'm not particularly optimistic about most of our proposals on this because it will mean a lot of other folks who uh, will not be criminalized in addition to um, folks who are criminalized for abortion. But so so I do think that that, that does police... We have a problem with rampant police impunity uh, in this country, um, and and it will show up here, uh, just like it does in many other sectors. I think sometimes when we talk about criminalization of abortion wholesale for folks that have not been working in and about repro, it feels very new. Like th this is something that we need to kind of like gird our loins and prepare for. But folks that have been working in in the RHRJ movements, reproductive rights, health and justice movements. Um, we have been talking about criminalization for a long time. And the reason that we've been talking about criminalization is because it's been happening for a long time. So I was talking about my colleague's research that um, the preliminary info just came out. So when she was combing through all of these like different clerk's offices all over the country, she unearthed like 61 cases of folks being criminalized for self-managed abortion in 26 states. 
Now, we only have three states that have laws criminalizing self-managed abortion left on the books. So, holy crap, the fact that there have been prosecutions in 26 states when only, I think at the time that some of these cases were about, only like five or six states had these laws on the books, tell us that prosecutors are very, very creative in the ways that they go after people. So the likelihood of always seeing abortion written at the top of the warrant is going to be low. And then in some states, we are going to start seeing it because they are going to, if they haven't already criminalized abortion wholesale, any kind of abortion, right? All abortions are going to become self-managed because folks are not able to get clinical care. So it's, it's not new. And I think that's one of the things that I want to make sure that folks understand that there are like criminal defense attorneys can and can deal with this because it's just the same messed up ways that they charge people in a variety of other cases. But I, I, I think the shock and awe um, that's hitting some folks who the criminal legal system doesn't move within their lives is I, I need folks to get out of shock and awe quick and get into work mode because some of the things that I'm seeing on the internet while we're talking about how hell is other people and how we can protect ourselves in our communities. Um, some of the ways that folks are talking about this on the internet shows that they're not people that have had the impact of the criminal legal system necessarily touch their lives, right? Like folks that think they're doing OPSEC on Twitter by like, if you want to get a manicure, you can come to my state and I'll pick you up for your manicure. And you know, that's, When we talk about how cases get put together on the back end, and I think um, Michelle can probably speak to this too, like as a public defender, when you're seeing how when you have a very motivated prosecutor, a cop that actually knows how to do their job and the information that they're able to gather when they investigate, yes, they will pull your tweets. Yes, even if it's not your case, they will pull your tweets and connect that person that got their abortion to the tweets that you put online to show that they intended to go to your place to go and get an abortion and then try to use those things to prosecute them over here. So even if you're willing to take the risk with your own life, if you're trying to help people, don't put them in a position that they can be harmed by some of the things that we say out loud. Because if you're living in a state where you're not afraid of criminalization, but the person you are trying to help is in a state that and they have to go back to somewhere they can be criminalized you got to think about how you're protecting them that's my soapbox rant <laughs> i think that's really valuable actually this like we saw it a lot in the trump administration too this like legal constitutional magic that uh like like the um seth abramson the 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 twitter thread guy right like it it um <laughs> it's sometimes it, yeah, it, it distracts from useful organizing and mutual aid because people are just like, well, if this and this and this and this and this, and then like, I understand this and no one else does, and this is a special secret, and then if we do this and turn around three times and go through the wardrobe, then Donald Trump will be impeached, or, you know, I can give you a safe, a safe, safe access to reproductive health care rather than just doing the work. And, and I, th I think another part of what was going on here, and this has been something that like, you know, if if you talk to people who've been doing this, like, okay, if 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 this is a thing you genuinely want to do, there are people who have been doing this kind of work for decades and decades and decades and decades, and they know largely what is safe and what isn't and what stuff is effective or not. And the the, the way that this sort of like, like the 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 kind of sort of like, hey, I'm gonna go do this on my own. I have I've never done this before. I don't know what I'm doing, but uh, here I'm gonna sort of signal that I can do this thing. Like. 
go talk. If you want to do this, go talk to the people who who have been doing it for ages and go support them because, like, you know, again, like the the reason we're, the reason we're here in the first place is because that this whole, like, the entire right to abortion has for literally decades been supported by just a, a really tiny number of incredibly underfunded and understaffed people and organizations. So, like, go help them. Don't like strike out on your own to boldly get you and everyone you're working with arrested. Yeah. I think, you know, some of that is, you know, I think some people have some good intentions, but my God, like that energy could be spent in so much more productive ways. And it's, it's kind of unfortunate. I think that the worst aspect of it though, is like the tech bros coming in and being like, I'm going to save this space with uh, crypto. Okay. We're going to create a DAO and like distribute funds. And I'm like, Oh my God. Like I'm just sitting here like, you know, because this is something like, you know, I, I, I've looked into with students like this earlier this year, like, you know, how payment transactions could be used um, and basically how there's basically almost no security with, with payment transactions, right? Like, like if you're using Venmo, which which in and of itself has like a social media function. So like, you know, you can see when your, your friend, you know, <laughs> Joe is like getting brunch on Sunday and like... You know, they could, you know, if you're not sending that to private by default like that, that's already a problem. But basically, like, you know, they, they can get access to those records pretty easily um, in, in a much easier way. And, you know, one of the things we, we, we started to look at, like, towards the end was like, oh, you know, as you know, had some, some students being like, well, well, can you can you use crypto? Can you use like Bitcoin? It's like you still have to interact at some point with a financial institution and they can tie these things yeah. back. It is not that exceptionally hard, especially if. Like now it's been shown that like Coinbase is like cooperating with the feds and basically acting like a giant honeypot. So like, I just, I, I fundamentally wish that like people would just like realize that like technology is not going to save us here. Like it can help if used wisely and creatively, but don't think that like, you're just going to like do this one little neat trick, like as James was saying, and then suddenly we're going to fix this because it's not right. Like this is going to take a million different solutions with a million different people doing all the little things that they can to push back. And like, that's one of the things I think we, we tried to be very humble about in our paper is like, look, none of this is a silver bullet. We're just trying to provide some concrete uh, solutions that states can take and some steps that they can take. But we realize that nothing is ever going to be perfect to, to solve this kind of Pandora's box that's been opened by Alito and, and all these like right-wing reactionaries on the court. So I guess, I guess speaking of things that are not silver bullets and will not save us, um, yeah, I guess could we get a bit more into looking at what the sort of like because like a, a lot of this article is talking about, I guess the 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 the, the history of extradition, uh, and how how that's sort of been understood and interpreted. And so I guess I was wondering, yeah, could could, could we go into talking about what the sort of legal stuff is going to look like when it, it like you know if if we start getting these large showdowns between like states with like actually sort of like you know if, if states actually start trying to have sanctuary laws that are like have teeth and are good what 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 is that sort of what is that going to look like yeah so th this is a kind of part that I, I focused on in the article and so basically a lot of people aren't aware about this because it's not really a contested area of the constitution but basically when the constitution was drafted um, and, and ratified, it, it contained what was called the extradition clause. And basically what it said is that, you know, all the states have a duty to turn over fugitives from other states that have been charged with the crime and have fled into those states. Because 
the United States is kind of weird. It's, it's a federal system, so like every state is still considered kind of its own sovereign in some ways, in a very like quasi sovereign way. And so there was a question about, you know, since all criminal prosecutions, basically, at, especially at the inception of the United States, were done at the state level, you know, what what happens when somebody crosses and uh, across state lines? Like, how are we going to handle that? And so basically, this was you know, one of the, the drafts. And initially they tried to set it at a higher bar, like to be like high crimes and misdemeanors, similar to kind of the impeachment clause. And, you know, they whittled it down to, and basically made it very applicable to set all crimes. Um, but it really did not get much play until basically in the 1840s when obviously the tension around slavery picked up, right? So you had enslaved people escaping to the north and the south being very angry about that and wanting the north to to return um the escaped enslaved folks and the north being like no and congress tried to figure out a way to like thread some kind of needle but made it 10 times worse and put us on an accelerating path towards civil war by passing the fugitive slave act of 1850 and a bunch of Radical abolitionists in the Northeast were like, we don't ever want to comply with this, right? So like Vermont passed this bill called the the Habeas Corpus Act, which basically created all kinds of legal procedures so that Southern bounty hunters wouldn't just come into the state and just kidnap, you know, the first um, black person they saw because they assumed that they were been an escaped enslaved person rather than a free person. And you know, and it was trying to stop that kind of issue of kidnappings and also just not to comply with this you know, the institution of slavery, because there were people who had escaped slavery and were in the North. And so it was causing all kinds of tension. And while like the the Vermont law was never fully tested, it did like create a lot of incendiary back and forth between like the North and the South and, and the press. And it was really interesting, like reading some of these old like newspaper articles from the like 18, like from 1850, because it was like basically like the press in Richmond and the press in Boston like taking stabs at each other, and it was like <laughs> the 1850 version of shit posting. Because they were like one person was just like, "This is nullification made easy," and like basically with like it's just it was the, it was the most surreal thing. Like if you know if you get a chance when when our full article comes out in December, there'll be some some uh, highlights from that in the footnotes. Um, but basically what it really got tested was in 1861. The case started in 1859, though. Um, it's called Kentucky v. Denison. And so what, what essentially happened is there was someone who aided um, an enslaved person escape Kentucky and get to Ohio. And basically the governor of Ohio was an abolitionist and was like, I don't want to comply with this, right? And I do not want to, I don't believe like this is a crime because this is not a crime in our state. And the attorney general of Ohio basically wrote a long legal memo stating that this, this is a crime not known to the laws of civilization or man. So basically, yeah, they fought. It, it went all the way to the Supreme Court and Chief Justice Taney, also notable for Dred Scott decision. So like absolutely, you know, just terrible court. Like they were, this came, I think about like three weeks before the Civil War. So this was like, I think it's in like March of 1861. So it, it basically like three weeks before Fort Sumter got like sacked by, by the South. Um, but basically what it did was, is that it said states actually can't utilize any discretion in extradition. So like the, like the governor of Ohio can't say like, I have concerns about human rights and that this isn't a crime in our state, right? There's not this dual criminality analysis and we're concerned about human rights and all these things. So the Supreme Court basically said, 
no, states don't have that discretion, which, you know, they, but they essentially like split the baby by, by then saying federal courts can't issue a writ of mandamus, which is basically an order for a government official to do something. Um, they said that federal courts couldn't do that to a state governor in extradition. So basically it means that like states don't have discretion, but federal courts can't enforce it. So therefore it's just a non-issue, right? Fast forward 120 years and we get to a case called Puerto Rico v. Brandstad, uh, which basically somebody committed murder in Puerto Rico, fled back to Iowa, and then was sought for extradition back to Puerto Rico. And there's a huge element of racism here because... You know, they were concerned that a white man couldn't get a fair trial in Puerto Rico, which is just deeply offensive. Um, and so they were and there was also a question of like territoriality. Right. Because Puerto Rico is a territory. I wasn't sure if like they had to comply with the extradition clause. And so essentially the Supreme Court said, yes, federal courts can comply uh, with uh, or can issue a writ of mandamus to to ensure extradition. So essentially what it did was it partially overturned the Kentucky v. Denison case, but upheld the central ruling and basically says states have no discretion. So what does that mean? Basically that states can't really stop the extradition of someone in their, in their um, jurisdiction, even if they have extreme concerns, right? So like if you have, like, let's say going back to Michelle's example earlier, someone who sends their friends like abortion pills um, from New York to, let's say, Texas, right? And Texas is seeking extradition and New York's like, well, that's not a crime here. So we don't want to extradite. Um, you know, the states would typically be hard pressed, but there's kind of two kind of, or there's one major issue with like the extradition part, right? It actually has to apply to someone who's, quote unquote, an actual fugitive, meaning that they had to actually be present in the state when the crime occurred. And the commission of the crime can't in itself create what's called constructive presence. You have to be corporeally present in the state, meaning you have to be physically present. You can't just like the, the commission of the crime doesn't constitute that. So in this instance, um, you know, the person who sends a pill in New York technically like constitutionally does not have to be extradited, right? Like they can contest that. The problem is, as Michelle pointed out, is that, you know, the extradition clauses that exist today is pretty much almost entirely just a, a, a formality that is waived basically almost every single time. And so the courts, the like the state attorneys, the district attorneys, even defense attorneys might not be familiar with that and might not know that that's something that they could potentially contest, or it's even something that they can, um, that, that it's a potential constitutional issue, right? And so that's one of the things that we focused on as our potential solution um, is to ensure that people who were not present in the state where the, the act occurred um, are able to mount a challenge to the extradition. Um, you know, it creates all kinds of other problems because there's still federal extradition, meaning like if you leave this, the country and come back in, like Border Patrol could potentially get you. We still don't have a clear understanding of how that necessarily would work, um, you know, and because that's never been a question that's like fully resolved. So, you know, the, the, basically, at the, you know, at the end of the day, like we want to make sure that like folks are aware of that. But like the folks that like leave Texas, right? So like if you committed an abortion, you were charged in Texas and you go to New York. Like, New York is not going to have very many options to protect you from being extradited back to Texas. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that, you know, I fundamentally believe Kentucky v. Denison was wrong, was wrongly decided uh, on the sense that states shouldn't 
be able to have a concern around human rights because it essentially acts as a one-way ratchet where the states with the most regressive anti-human rights criminal justice laws get to have like get to dictate that over all of the other states similar to how um slavery like the the southern states were trying to enforce the institution of slavery on northern states that had that had abolished slavery decades ago so it's a very complicated issue and again i i reach back to that slavery analysis because not because I, I think that you know the slavery and abortion should be compared directly, but because this is like this is fundamentally the last time where you have criminal laws that are so different between states. Like one state's human right is another state's capital crime. Like it, you can't get further apart than that. Yeah, and I wanted to just clarify for folks: if I drove the pill to Texas, then I would have committed the crime in Texas and New York could extradite me. Um, and I, what I also think I, I'm sort of here is the what happens on the ground, right? So if you, to be clear, while, as Alejandra correctly points, if I just mailed it to Texas and they have the warrant, while we're sorting out this extradition warrant, I am very likely incarcerated. And the sorting out of the extradition warrant will probably take 90 days. So just because, and I think folks get confused with this a lot, just because something is illegal doesn't mean, or, or your lawyer's arguing it's illegal, doesn't mean it just magically stops um, or the process ends. And so this is something where we think that um, really there should be a basis to contest your extradition on a human rights ground, on two grounds. Either there is no dual criminality, that is, this is not actually a crime in the other state. Interestingly here, handing someone a prescription pill in New York is actually a felony, whether or not you get money for it. Uh, most folks don't know that. Eve's smiling because she also was a public defender in, in New York City. Because um, uh, it blows your mind. You're like, wait, they just handed it to them? There's no money exchanged? Yeah, that's a felony drug sale. So we might have dual criminality. New York might actually say... Um, you did do a crime, so I will extradite you, which is why we think there also needs to be uh, a human rights defense. And this may also extend to, well, we're not going to extradite them to Texas because they have the death penalty. And we think that is a clear contravention of human rights. Maybe we can extend it to prison conditions. I don't know how that far that goes. Again, these are things I don't know they'd be likely to be codified. But if we're actually dreaming up the world that we think where this could work, like I, as your attorney, should be able to come in and say there's no dual criminality. This is in contravention of human rights. And once I mount that defense, then the court is bound to release you while we sort that out. Um, and and that is sort of our vision. Uh, another thing that that Alejandra mentioned, the the, the Vermont law um, in the 1800s. And one of the things that it said was you could get a jury of your peers in, in a situation like this. There's no jury in an extradition case, but the idea, of course, is that a jury is going to say this is morally wrong. I don't care what the law says. We're not sending this person back to enslavement. And the idea here is if you put a jury in on a, and you assert a human rights defense, perhaps the jury will say, no, we're not sending you. So these are these are a lot yes. of ideas that we've been coming up with. So we're, we're doing the, the, the plan there was jury nullification. Yes, it, oh. it absolutely was. It absolutely was jury nullification yeah. was part I of the love, plan. Love, 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 love jury nullification. I, I, 
anybody with the law review that's listening to this, let me write about jury nullification for you. And I feel abortion. like they won't, but but we we, we I, I feel like yeah, I, I have been you. wanting to explain jury nullification on this show literally since yeah. the like I, I asked Call if I could do an episode on it one. the first week. <laughs> yeah, Call good. me back for the next one. I, so I there's something that I don't want to be lost, and that's the idea of like people don't necessarily know what they're being charged with in the state that's asking for them to go back. Cause there's not really a requirement that that, so for an extradition, like thinking through what you actually need, like the bare bones of an extradition, it needs to be like a piece of paper that's signed by the governor, but not necessarily the governor of the state, but somebody with authority to ask for you to return back. And that's in essence it. Right. Just like a piece of paper signed by somebody that says X, Y, Z, birth date, X, Y, Z, did a crime in our state. Give them back to us. Right. Oh, they don't have to say what crime. Not really a requirement. It usually says it, but it doesn't it doesn't require Hmm. a probable cause affidavit, which I think is really Hmm. the more important part. It doesn't require you to prove that there is enough to charge them with a crime in the sending state. Right. So we're saying that's a bare minimum change that we can make to laws to make the state that's asking for you to use your resources to put somebody in a cage and then put them in a traveling cage to bring them to our cages. Um, And I keep saying the word cage because I I don't want us to move away from what like prisons and jails actually are. It's like bars and cages and boxes. Right. So does it really harm the system? Does it really tear you all apart to say And here's what they're being charged with and the reason why, because that would be the bare minimum for someone to be charged for a crime in New York. You would need to have probable cause for the arrest. And then a judge that's sitting on the bench gets to say, yep, there's enough probable cause for this person to be charged next court date, you know, and but we don't have that with extradition. We just trust that the wheels of bureaucracy are turning the way that they need to. Holy crap, that can harm so many people. So. We're just saying, hey, make them write it down. So maybe a judge that's sitting in Illinois can look at this warrant from Missouri that says, we want XYZ back here because of a self-managed abortion. And then they can see whether or not Illinois' new fancy extradition law, which they haven't written yet, but I'm sure they will, applies, right? I I think that's a bare (coughs) minimum that we can do. And as much as I crave shaking systems and tearing them apart, I don't think that's going to be a thing that does it. But it might... You know, have y'all ever played Mario Kart? You know, when you're yeah. driving and you're able to throw like the turtle shell or the banana, that might be the banana that might slow down the process of somebody kind of getting dragged along on this course. Well, and, and I think I think there's like there's another thing that that would do, too, which is that that buys time for community response. Because like, you know, if, if we go back to sort of the ice stuff, it was like, well, yeah, OK, like ice raids weren't stopped by the sanctuary laws the thing that like did slow them down was massive community response yeah i think i think that's very uh it's certainly i've seen that happen here like in san diego it wasn't any of our performative democrat laws it it, it was people getting out into the street yeah i was gonna say there's it's also like in the uk in the last couple of months there's been a lot of really really impressive community defense things and like cops showing up and like just entire communities and neighborhoods showing up but the cops just like running away and it's been it's been incredible to watch and uh you too can also do this but performative democrats keep giving us good laws like 
give us something give anything yeah, like a nub five. of a thing that folks can hang their hats on um i i just don't want any politician out there to think that they're absolved from the job of protecting people yeah well and, and, I, and i think i think again the thing with these laws right is like you you actually like with this extradition stuff like i don't know how like i, I don't know how you would even like try to stop it unless like because like you don't know like i mean i, I like unless unless you're going to commit to try to stop trying to stop every person who gets arrested which i think is like a noble goal but like there's no we don't have the capacity for that like if if, if we lived in a world where we could do that like <laughs> the, the world would be much better and <laughs> the state would be running for its life but yeah it's like like it, it, it seems like a thing that like it it it, it gives like it gives time for the law to act. More importantly, it's like it gives time for us to act, yeah. and that that seems that, really important. That's absolutely one of the most important things. Is it's buying time for people to organize and people to be able to push back, and also creates a higher barrier, right? Like at the end of the day, like these systems are still made of people, and people are incredibly lazy, and oftentimes like the police and other yeah. <laughs> folks like don't want to have to deal with like engaging and going with like an extradition request because like, the actual process for dealing with that is actually very onerous like um they have to physically go to the state to pick them up and they have to like do all these things right and so what we're doing is like we're suggesting is like make it even harder like make it absolutely hard for them to to go through this and actually have to litigate in courts and like bring all this stuff um and and just basically like slow down the process and and raise that kind of barrier to entry on it but you know i think it's like i think that's you know very um important to say is like you know the, the community defense aspect like cannot be overstated because at the end of the day, like laws are just words on paper, right? Like it's it's the people that give them the effect and the power. So uh, really what we need is like people to say like, this is morally wrong, right? Like we're not gonna prosecute people for, for exercising their bodily autonomy and engaging in a fundamental human right. And so, you know, one, one of the things I've been heartened by is, you know, um, it's like Elm Fork John Brown Cl- Gun Club in Dallas, like what they've been doing, like protecting houseless folks, like under the overpasses, like they show up, and like, you know, in Texas, they can open carry and like the police don't want to deal with them. So they're like buying a few more days so that the the, the Dallas police doesn't um, come in and sweep, you know, the only belongings that these people have. And like that in and of itself brought so much attention that like brought so much scrutiny to Dallas PD's actions. So like it, it's that kind of community defense. And I think it also harkens back to how these extradition issues like prior to like the civil war worked out. It wasn't necessarily like these formal systems in Vermont that like stopped, you know, escaped enslaved persons from being returned back to the South. It was like entire mobs of people coming and like being like, you're not taking this person out of our town. And if you try to, you're not going to leave here like as a whole person, I I guess is probably the best way to put that. Um, Shoot your local bounty hunter. Yeah. And so like, essentially like that that's how it worked right and like you know at the end of the day like i feel like you know i, I don't want to endorse any kind of violence but like it, like what really what it means is like when people show up and they physically put themselves in, in 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 the way it makes it so much harder for the like this kind of wheel of injustice to to continue and so that's really what it's going to take and like you were mentioning with like the with the ice raids and everything like that like it took people it sometimes physically putting their bodies in front of ice fans to stop them from driving away and like chaining themselves to, to stuff. And like, that's the kind of like nonviolent, like direct action that I think is like going to be like needed. Yeah. And I, I think folks seem to have 
figured out that their district attorneys are elected. And the person bringing the fugitive case, which I don't think I've been crystal clear about, is the district attorney. So then you, the, the police officer is going to go to the district attorney's office and, and that is the person who's going to bring the court case to help facilitate sending the person. Um, and I know New York recently has seen a number of successes of folks organizing around individual people be saying, you need to drop these charges. This conviction got overturned. You should not be continuing with the case. This person is a for whatever reason folks are organizing around, right? And so if we can create some delays whereby the person is free, right? Because this is the key thing. We don't want people incarcerated. Incarceration in and of itself is extreme violence, right? So if the person is not incarcerated, then we can sort of delay this process and organize around pressuring whoever needs to be pressured, particularly the the toothless Democratic politicians who say they're against all of this stuff, but then at the end of the day, are they going to ignore the homicide extradition warrant? Like, that's where the rubber meets the road. Are you going to do it or not, right? Yeah. And, and, and I think that's a much harder question when it comes down to that for them because they're like, well, it's a homicide warrant, right? And, and so that's where they need the pressure because um, all the wild ideas go out the door in that moment. Yeah, I think like I think that's the thing with with these people is like ideologically like they don't care enough to do it do it. But if you but you can force them to care. Yeah, they right? care you about can, having a job. Or, yeah, well, it's not not even just so much that like there there are long established ways of putting pressure on people and systems that can force them to do things they don't want to do. And yeah, go do that because <laughs> we're, we're gonna need I mean, it. Frankly, I think part of this is also destigmatizing work, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because when we have kind of these big divergent ideas, when we find ourselves at this split of like good versus evil, right? Like slavery versus not slavery, bodily autonomy versus not bodily autonomy. Um, Sometimes the good guys compromise to the point that we get ourselves to this position later on down the line. And what we can do is kind of galvanize community response and also civic engagement by forcing folks to take a look at the laws that we so rely on and questioning why does this thing exist this way? Why is this process moving that way? Someone that didn't know that folks facing an extradition warrant like often have to make the decision at an arraignment, am I going to waive my right to extradition and wait for them to come get me? Because they said that takes 30 days for them to come and get you. But if you don't waive, it's going to take 90 days for them to come and get you. So you'll be sitting there longer. And that's a decision that you need to make kind of like in that moment. If we're talking about extradition in normal conversation, we're moving forward to a place where we're destigmatizing and frankly demystifying what the criminal legal system really looks like in the nuts and bolts. It might end up with better conversations and better output for folks in the future. It might end up with you being able to talk about jury nullification and having like and not having it be kind of like a shaking the table conversation. Because frankly, these are all like civics, it's civics, it's rights, it's things that are written in the constitution that governs us where the cops don't need to know the law, but we're all expected to. Right. So it it takes all kinds. It takes all responses for us to just get to the place that's better than the stopgap that Roe had been giving us for the last 40 some odd years. And I'll I'll say like the one thing that does terrify me in this end is like, or I guess like really concerns me is like what Ron DeSantis just did in Florida in Hillsborough County. Like I grew up in Hillsborough County. So I am from there. So it's like, 
like the twice elected uh, state attorney there was just suspended because he said he would refuse to um, prosecute crimes related to abortion and gender affirming care. He like also refused to like prosecute trans people using the bathroom. Right. So like these kinds of things and DeSantis just like sacked him, right. An elected person that like reflects the values of that County. And so like that, that's the other thing to, to be aware of It's you know, like even when you do exercise that power and like say like, this is our, as a community, these are our values on like who we should be prioritizing um, in the criminal justice system there are still people out there that will will try to circumvent that in a very authoritarian and autocratic way. And so, um, you know, I think it's not just who you're voting for your local DA, it's who, who are you voting for a governor? Who are you voting for, like, you know, th- these people that have uh, broader powers over this? I wanted to briefly talk about this because uh, I know, like, it was proposed, at least by my representative, the, and I think it's being, like, bandied about as a solution uh, and, uh it doesn't seem like it is, but this My Body, My Data Act, uh, which and I was trying to read through it a little earlier. It seems like it allows people to like sue tech companies for selling their data that leads to their prosecution. I don't know if you all are f- familiar with it, but maybe we could just discuss a little bit. What? No? Okay. All right. <laughs> I mean, so <laughs> I'm, I'm not familiar, but based on what you just said, right, I think there's this... And I really think it goes back to what Evco is saying about folks just like not not fully understanding precisely how the criminal legal system just like runs over people. Okay, great. So I can sue the tech company after the police have put me in a cage and and convicted me based on the date. Like, like, okay. I mean, great. Maybe I'll have a lot of money in my commissary. My family will have enough. Um, like. Uh, funds to come drive and visit me at whatever state prison they've got me locked up in, right? Like, like this is where we have to step back and think, are, is, this, is this thing pre- actually preventing the harm? Because I, I, I think a lot of times folks are just like, well, we can sue them or we could get back at them. And, and I also want folks to remember that just making something illegal does not prevent harm, right? And, and, we could have a whole other conversation about criminalization as a solution to anything, which I think it is not. <laughs> um, but but just on on the face of what you've said to me, I, that doesn't sound like a solution. That if I, I, I it wouldn't feel adequate to me <laughs> if it, if I yeah, were in yeah. that situation. <laughs> and also uh, thinking about how cases become cases from what we know, it it's not again, it's not coming from big data down, right? for the most part, it certainly can happen, but really what's happening is violations of people's fourth amendment rights, (laughs) cops being able to access things on people's actual devices, oftentimes without warrants, oftentimes by not fully explaining that people have the right to say no. Um, And I'm sure Michelle has had clients that were like, oh, they just took my phone. How many times have we heard that, right? They just took my phone and started going through it. A police officer that does that is not going to write in their report. And I just took his phone without any permission. It's always permission was granted. It was in plain view. I saw it from the street. I smelled it as he was walking by. Like if the laws that are being created are not actually responsive to the harm that folks are experiencing in a way that actually prevents it, then we need to kind of push back at our legislators and say, okay, this is great. 
but is it responding to the thing that you're saying it's responding to? Because, yeah, shout out to people being able to sue big tech for selling our data without our permission. Bet. But is that going to prevent prosecutors from going after folks that have abortions? Probably not. Because even in the Nebraska case that Alejandra mentioned at the top of the hour, that was a warrant that was signed by a judge. It was a search warrant that was provided to Facebook that didn't say the words abortion on it, that didn't say they were going after someone for abortion. It had, I think, the words like abuse of a corpse or something of that nature on there. And for them, it was wrote what they normally do, bureaucracy, search warrant, stamp, here's the data that you're looking for. A law that prevents folks from selling your data doesn't prevent that from happening. Something I think a lot about though is one of my sort of like formative political experiences was back in like two thousand. I think, I think this was happening about two thousand twelve, two thousand thirteen, um, right after the the revolution in Bahrain. So okay, so the revolution in Bahrain, Saudi tanks roll in, they crush it, they kill a bunch of people, and the government starts doing this crackdown. The way the government does the crackdown is they go they they go to Facebook and they 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 take stuff that was on people's public accounts and then they go to Facebook and they ask them for information, and Facebook turns it over. And, you know, the government just goes through and finds everyone who's at a protest and starts arresting them. And, you know, Facebook was just like, eh. And like that, if, you know, if, 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 if they, if they will comply with a literal monarchy who has had a second monarchy send an army across the border in order to crush a bunch of protests, like they're going to comply with the U.S. and they're going to keep doing this stuff to you. And so, yeah, I was like, I like yeah. Even if you can sue them, they're still going to cooperate with the U.S. government because... Yeah, they have a greater financial interest in doing so. Yeah. Big tech doesn't give a fuck about you. Yeah, I think, folks, again, as Eve was saying, like Eve was saying, it was just so, like, this is rote. This is what they do every day. This is not that serious or that deep to them. And I think we need to start asking bigger questions about why do we have a system where it's so easy for the government to just, like, come in and... Um, have a subpoena signed. Like the subpoenas are easy to get. Like we have these mechanisms are all in place. And that's what I was sort of saying earlier is that I, I think folks who haven't been paying attention to this, who are all of a sudden like, wow, how is this happening? Oh my goodness. Well, these are the machines of mass incarceration that we have spent a few decades really building up. And so now when the person, the people you're sympathetic with start to get criminalized, all of a sudden... We're very shocked. And listen, however you got here, great. Welcome. I'm glad folks are here and saying like, wow, this is a problem. And I want folks to think the if, if the abortion context and the self-managed abortion is your entry point, I hope it is not the end point. I hope that you are thinking bigger about how did all these systems get here? Who do they serve? And and and. I hope, how do we dismantle them? Because it's it's not just this select few people, group of people that we should care about. I think it's all the people who are who are exposed to this on, on the daily. Um, so yeah, that's my soapbox. <laughs> I always wonder how many judges um, have refused to sign a search warrant. That's like a big wonder of mine. <laughs> I, I don't, judges don't hang out with me, obviously, for a lot of obvious <laughs> reasons. But if I were to like, just whisper in my ear real quick. How many times have you ever said no to a police officer that comes to ask to swear a warrant in front of you? How, how many times have you found there is no probable cause, dude? Like, 
Like this well, is I mean, okay. This is weird. To 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 be fair, there 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 are there have there there have to be a certain number of times where they're trying to go after another judge, or they're trying no, to go after like don't do that. Bill Clinton or something. After like, other judges, I, I don't know. It, it, it's got to have happened once. Like there there has to have been one time where a cop yeah, was like, call, "This okay. judge pissed me off. I'm going to go raid his car or something." Never, never. That I can pro- like that <laughs> I can. Uh, think about never happening but i just wonder how many times has somebody said we are gonna go search for drugs in xyz house in this specific neighborhood that a co- that a judge just says huh you don't have enough here try again it doesn't happen yeah at well, least not in state court like- i'm told in federal court maybe maybe you know they turned down one out of 25 but in state court our, my experience is it it's 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 again it's routine yeah. it's just how things go I mean, one of the one of the things I came across when I was, you know, it's not dealing with particularly judges issuing warrants, but one of the things I, I uh, did when when I was looking into the payment app issue this past uh, spring um, is, you know, I talked to a former prosecutor and was like, you know, what is it like to get documents from or or data from like Facebook and, and you know Instagram or, or Meta or whatnot or like Twitter or any of these other places, and they were just like. Oh, we just send a request. Like we don't even like it's basically an administrative subpoena, and they just like hand over everything. Like um, it's basically just like so routine. Oftentimes, especially if it's coming from a district attorney's office or law enforcement, like oftentimes these com- companies just like casually hand over stuff all the time, especially when it's like dealing with low-level drug stuff um, or uh, any kind of like issues like that. You know, they, they they like to say, oh, we're we're big on on civil rights and, and stuff like that, and and making sure your data is protected. But in reality, like, there's so many requests around this stuff, and it's just, you know, it, the only time they ever maybe make a stand is when a case is higher profile and it may damage their brand, right? And that's the, that's the only time they actually ever care. On the defense attorney side, it's hard as heck to get your clients' records for things. Yeah, like so hard so so hard you're looking for information on a facebook for somebody that's incarcerated that might get them out of jail and they don't remember their password you don't know how to get into their stuff and it needs to be not a screenshot because that you might not be able to get that authenticated and admissible in court and it is so hard when you're working on the other side and not in law enforcement to get data and information but on the flip side when it comes to like people's medical information which comes into play in a lot of these cases because we're at this intersection of bodily autonomy and health in the criminal legal system i we've certainly seen in cases where folks are having a medical emergency and cops are able to just go and do a bedside interview with somebody that's coming out of surgery still drugged up right they're able to just go up to a charge nurse and being like so how's he doing and they're getting information that's wild Because I have had requests for my client's medical records with signed HIPAA authorizations returned because I signed with blue ink instead of black ink. It's not rote. (laughs) (laughs) It's not rote when it's not coming from law enforcement sometimes. And that's kind of the wild thing. There's this assumption that folks in law enforcement have a right to all information at all times forever. And that's where things get rubber stamped. And that's the stuff that we're not really looking at that have large impact on how people access their rights. I was just, as we were talking about like Facebook, knowing everything about you and uh, loving the cops, uh, I was like reminded of Foucault's panopticon and like this idea that you'll start to internalize discipline because you never know when you're being watched, right? Um, 
and so I wondered, like, if obviously, like, uh, when Foucault talks about it, the idea is that you will do, you act like you think the state is watching because the state could always be watching. Therefore, you have to act like it is watching. Uh, and like, it's it. We're not there yet, right? Like, like oh, there we're are, totally there. Have you not heard the FBI in your phone joke? The yeah. FBI on my computer. Like, I hope he likes my makeup today. We're totally there. Like, we're, yeah, I think yeah. there's an assumption that we're all being watched. Whether I don't know. Or not. Eve, sometimes I wish our clients uh, thought they were being watched more because sometimes people <laughs> yeah. put too much on Facebook. <laughs> we yeah, all do. Right. Well, yeah, you're right. Let times. me not keep myself from that because I am very much included. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so like, that's what I wanted to ask, right? Like, how do we not, uh, I've not, obviously, you know, we don't want people to listen to this and do crimes, but um, like, how should people act in their interactions, uh, like in in a way that is, like I guess, uh, I don't know, that, that makes them less vulnerable to like these very obvious obsec fails. I guess. Um, I have some resources. Uh, so yeah, at If When How, we have this thing called the Repro Legal Helpline. It's reprolegalhelpline.org. It's also a warm line with a phone number that people can call and ask questions like, what are my rights when it comes to my abortion, my self-managed abortion? And on that website, we have digital tips about how do you protect yourself and sanitize your digital space just for safety as a whole, not to hide information from everyone, but how do you move and prevent and minimize your risks. What does harm reduction look like to you? We also have the Repro Legal Defense Fund, and that exists for folks when they are actually being criminalized to pay for things like bail, help out with attorney's fees, help out with expert fees. So there are folks that are working on this stuff that exists as resources, and there are resources out there. But I, I would tell folks to really think about who are you telling your business to um, when you share information, is that information that's necessary for treatment that you're being asked? Um, just because we're used to being in spaces where there is a power imbalance about sharing all of the information that's asked of us. And I think when it comes to spaces and times where we're more vulnerable um, to state actors causing harm to us, being mindful about what questions are you being asked and is that question necessary for you to be able to receive care or services, X, Y, Z. Um, and it sucks to have to put work on the back of folks that are already being oppressed by systems. It's absolute trash and I fully recognize that's it's, it's messed up. But um, when, we're think <laughs> when we're thinking about what does harm reduction look like, I think that's one of those things that we have to keep in mind. Um, and harm reduction also looks like folks knowing generally what the law is and being able to advocate for themselves in those spaces. Yeah, I'll just add from my side from like kind of just, you know, from, from a cyber perspective, it's, you know, just in general ways, like there's nothing that's going to be bulletproof right, or, or a silver bullet in terms of always protecting your privacy, but like the quicker ways that you can kind of at least make yourself generally safer is use apps like Signal for, for chatting. Um, also use like auto delete features, um, you know, don't don't keep like years worth of, of text messages and stuff like that. Um, additionally, um, you know, don't use biometrics. Uh, because you don't have a Fifth Amendment right for self-incrimination for, for biometrics, right? So it's, it's a long, long reason why that is in the courts. Use a password. Don't use a short pin. Use a password. I know it's annoying. I know it's a like, you know, a, a fingerprint or face like unlock is like much more convenient. But 
you know, if you are at high risk or you worry about this stuff and you're concerned about your privacy, like use those things because they can't compel you to, to, to do that generally. Um, you know, the other things uh, is um, the Yuki app, E-U-K-I, um, uh, which is a um, sexual health app that has a lot of information about, um, you know, reproductive um, issues. Um, it also has like a, a menstrual tracker, but it's all encrypted client side. Uh, they have, they get no data, um, and it has a, it prompts you for a password and PIN to open it, um, and it also has uh, uh, resources for self managed abortion um, and and how to safely handle those. Um, and yeah, you know, just generally, you know, anything you put out there on social media, also like be careful, like what you you, you put out there, like stay to end and end to end encryption. Use VPNs if you can. You know, the, these are just kind of like general stuff. Like nothing is, again, ever going to be foolproof. But yeah, there are some small steps you can take to at least increase uh, some of your protections. And on my end, you know, you have a right to remain silent. You should use it. Uh, and thanks to the Supreme Court, you have to say, I want to be silent in order to invoke your right to be silent. You cannot just be silent. Um, so you... I would advise people to say, I want to be silent and I want a lawyer. Those are the magic words. I also want to hold that being captured by police officers is a violent experience and a scary experience. And sometimes asserting your rights can provoke more violence. And so people do what they need to do to stay safe in that moment. Um, from a, the law perspective, saying I would, I want to be silent and I want a lawyer um, are the things that invoke all of your constitutional protections. Um, and the police may lie about whether or not you said that later. So, you know, say it as many times as you need to. But those are really the only things you should say, which is a lot um, easier said than done. Um, but that that is the, the thing that folks should do if they do find themselves um, in the custody of law enforcement. And also, if you're on the street, ask if you're free to go. And if you're free to go, please walk. Do not run away. There's also a case about that. <laughs> ah, God, hate the cops. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you all so much for joining us. Um, this, this has been really great. And yeah, yeah. don't talk to cops. <laughs> yep. Would you like to plug anything before we uh, leave with Don't Talk to Cops? Yeah, I can just draw my personal side. Uh, you can follow me on all socials on Twitter and Insta um, at Esquire underscore. So it's like portmanteau of, of Esquire and Queer, S-E-S-Q-U-E-E-R underscore. Um, and also I have a podcast called Queering the Law um, where I talk about a lot of these issues as well. Um, so if you want to give that a listen. Um, don't follow me on social media because uh, all my stuff is closed. Uh, but I would uh, recommend that folks follow at if when how on all socials because we're always uh, providing up to date information on what's actually going on with criminalization of self managed abortion and resources from you know community partners that are on the ground local that are doing the work. So if folks are looking to get connected, I would say reach out to if when how and we can usually point you in the right direction. You could follow me on Twitter, but I don't really remember what my handle is. So uh, <laughs> what I would suggest that you do, uh, pretrial detention and bail litigation is really my heart. You got folks locked up and they haven't even been found guilty. Not that anyone should be locked up. So donate to your local bail fund uh, if you don't know who that is. 
There's a lot of orgs, National Bailout, um, the Bail Project. There's a lot of places you can find that. But throwing five, ten, fifteen dollars uh, at your local bail fund will get someone free because you can purchase your freedom here in 2022 America. So um, do that. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, this is been Naked Happen here. Uh, you can find us in places. Uh, don't talk to cops and. Yeah, if there weren't any cops, you couldn't make things illegal. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.